podcast this week, we have three more wonderful guests all tied up and wrapped and placed lovingly under the pod tree just in time for Christmas. What's this? A pair of socks? No, it's Numi Rapaz, star of Lamb. And what about this oddly shaped package? A bike? A snooker table? A cameo appearance in Spider-Man No Way Home? No, it's Andrew Garfield, star of Mainstream. And what's that man-shaped package crawling slowly towards the door? You don't get away that easily, Steven Spielberg, director of West Side Story. All that and more on the movie podcast that has forgotten to put air holes in the packaging. I'm sure it'll be totally fine. Totally fine. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. <laughs> what? What happened to you the this Empire, morning? The Empire Podcast does not condone the kidnapping and holding and suffocation and suffocation of beloved film directors. Of beloved film directors. I would not be culpable. Men's right. I mean, you, you absolutely be. would be. Uh, anyway, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. I can I just say for the the, the removal of all doubt, I have not kidnapped. <laughs> Numi Rapaz, Andrew Garfield, and Steven Spielberg. That is my story, and I'm sticking to it, oh and I have an alibi, just in case. Anyway, joined once again for the penultimate episode of the year, folks. Woo! Yeah, I know, we only have one more regular episode to go before Christmas comes and the goose is getting fat and all that sort of stuff. One pod more! <laughs> it, what is that? What is that? That's good. That's from the great, that's from a really, really good musical, as opposed to oh, other, other, other musicals are available. Oh, but oh. we'll get into that a bit later. We go have an argument today. <laughs> oh my god. This is gonna make Molly's game look like Oh no. James has jumped a shark. Let's have at it. <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Dear God. Dear God in heaven. Anyway. Hello all. Uh, I'm joined. <laughs> Act surprised at home. If when you're listening at home and I announce their names, act surprised as if they haven't interjected a dozen times already in this podcast. I'm joined by my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. We're all very, very excited. We have, of course, Christmassy geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Yes, I'm the best dressed podcaster since Carrie Bradshaw in And Just Like That, who is now a podcaster like us. Oh, God, is she? Yes, she is. She is. We're also joined by our GBFN, our great big festive nerb, James Dyer. Hello, Chris. How are you? I am okay. I have a story for you, but I'm going to wait until you've introduced our other colleague all right okay uh here he is he has uh he has just come back from a hard session of serial killing uh but he you know he's attached jingle bells to his knives uh so people can hear him coming it means it's the pickings a bit slim this month it is of course the nicest man of showbiz ben travis where did you say steven spielberg was being bound and held i mean he's under the tree ben it's the massive steven spielberg shaped package under the tree why are you holding a knife, Ben? <laughs> Do you know, this is actually really upsetting. The way people can't see this because this is obviously broadcast and audio only, but uh, Ben is back and to the right of me, slightly out of my peripheral vision at all times, and it's making me really fucking uneasy. <laughs> He's also <I'm> looming. <laughs> He's wearing a Jurassic World uh, sweatshirt. Clever girl. Or is it a hoodie? Or is it a cardigan? Ben, what would, a, how would you describe that? It's a long-sleeve T-shirt. A long-sleeve T-shirt. It's surely a long-sleeve top, because T-shirt by its very nature needs to be T-shaped. It is T-shaped. I see what you're saying. Like okay. <laughs> ben and I are basically flanking James like the raptors you are. at yeah. the moment. Yeah. So it's, it's making and with, me nervous. with a giant claws uh, that you mm-hmm. each brought in today for some reason. Yes. Yeah. That was weird. <laughs> well, I was wrapping some presents, uh, some large, cumbersome presents. And so I just needed to get those presents to play ball. Mm. Hence the, wow. the giant claws. Ah. Oh. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Santa Claus. You know, yeah. uh, that's that's what I that's Sandy what I was Sandy Claus. Yeah, my Sandy Claus uh, kept Garfield in line. Old Satan Claus oh, no. just keeps on coming. Oh, no. <laughs> he really does. Um, I mean, this is the thing about, you know, I was asked for Christmas to get uh, my wife a large Garfield. I misunderstood. <laughs> and, and one half bottle of chloroform later, there he is under the tree. And wow. we would all like to apologise again to Andrew Garfield for yeah. the misunderstanding yeah. and or kidnapping. She also asked me to get her uh, an album by a rap ace and I misheard. And now Numi Rapaz is under the tree as well. And again, we'd like to apologise to her as well for the misunderstanding and any inconvenience caused She'll by the be kidnapping. Fine. She'll be fine. It's not kidnapping, it's Christmas. Again, for the benefit of doubt and the removal of any doubt and for the um, the benefit, indeed, of the Metropolitan Police, this is oh, a don't. bit. Oh, <laughs> yes. Don't worry. Okay. A bit of incriminating <laughs> evidence yeah. is what it is. Don't, but, don't, so. don't worry. The, the Metropolitan Police don't re- investigate crimes retroactively, so it's fine. <laughs> this, this is true. It's carte blanche. Ben, you must have been delighted to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I am delighted for you guys. <laughs> Ben's being very careful here yeah. not to incriminate himself. Good old killer Ben. Yeah. <laughs> old stabby Travis. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, welcome all, welcome all. Um, how we prepped for Christmas, my tree is up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the goose is getting fat. Uh, and it's all very, very exciting. Who Presents goose are being for bought. Christmas? Scrooge. We had one one year. It's, it's really, really tasty. Yeah, you there's a, a goose. Lo- a lot more fat comes out of it than the turkey, oh, though. So you have to put it on a rack. This was not information I needed. I'm just saying, like, just be prepared. If you cook a goose, it's very, very tasty, but a lot of fat. But then you can use that for the roast potatoes. Have oh, you ever? Maverick must potatoes. fucking hate you. <laughs> <laughs> it's too soon, is it? It's too soon to talk about goose. Okay. Was talk go- to me, goose. Was goose buried or was he cremated? Well, Helen ate him. I think buried was the at sea. I think. So. Was he buried at sea? Oh, so Brian. He was Brian. Oh God. <laughs> Marinate. Oh, no. oh, God. oh, it's all too soon. A nice bit of crispy goose for, for Christmas. Yeah. You know. Can I tell you my story now? Which, if you like, is an impromptu three-fat structure from me. I'm going to give you a fact. Oh, no. no. We don't have time. No, this is it. This is my fact. So this is a ghost of three-fat structures past. This, this happened a few weeks ago. I got an email from a publicist called Thanos. <laughs> Absolutely true. A pub- I immediately, obviously it went straight to the top of my inbox. I was a priority sender. I was like, yes, okay. Opened it up. And Thanos, the publicist, who I assume is Greek, uh, but he said to me, uh, oh, you know, there's a... there's a, a Titan? A t- <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, there was a TV show coming out called Arcane based on the video game League of Legends. He said to computer, and I was like, I, I, all I heard was animated TV series based on video games. I was like, no, not for me. Thanks very much. I don't watch animated shows. I especially don't like adult animation, quote unquote. Not hentai. I mean, literal. <laughs> animation. So, so, and I was like, so no, I'm not going to watch it. So enough people kept hassling me for it. So, so fine, I will sit down, I will watch an episode. And I watched an episode of Arcane on Netflix and it is fucking brilliant. Like the animation is unbelievable. It's beautifully directed, wonderfully like choreographed. It's just glorious. I loved every minute of it. Right. And I'm devouring the show. So I have found an animated show that I not only like, but actually is probably among my top shows of the year. What's the show called? Arcane. Arcane. Okay. And it's all down to Thanos. And the moral of this story, Helen, is of no, course... absolutely not. ...that Thanos was right, and that is my fact. Okay, that wasn't the, the moral. That was not a moral <laughs> that you was, could take from wasn't the moral. It wasn't, wasn't a moral at all. It wasn't a story. It wasn't Barely even a, a three-fact structure. Yeah, it just uh, went on and on. I gave you a yeah. fact. A fact with a backstory. Thanos right. was right. Okay. And from now on, whenever I say Thanos was right, you'll be thinking, does he mean Thanos the Titan, or does he mean Thanos the publicist, who put him onto Arcane on Netflix? And you'll never know. What this about that true. time that Tom Holland was fighting Thanos? Which Tom Holland? Which Tom Holland? Oh my true. god! So Tom Holland, the guy who directed Fright Night, is fighting Thanos, the publicist. That's oh my absolutely god! What's happening? Wow. This is this yeah. huge. I went to a bookstore the other day and I asked to see their their hentai selection, and so they showed me a book of Tim Himmen wearing cravats. I don't think that makes sense. Like chickens wearing cravats might work better. 
I went to bookstore the other day. All right, so um, fuck it. This has gone off the rails already. <laughs> While it's already James. off the rails, can I just ask oh, why okay. James yep. is drinking from a mug that says, keep calm, the queen is coming. <laughs> is that supposed to that is true. You? Are you the queen? I, it's, it's hard to say. I picked it up uh, in the kitchen and they didn't have the Thanos was right mug from the latest episode of Hawkeye yeah. so I just grabbed Spoiler. what was on offer uh, and, and this is what I got which is a, a Madame Tussauds mug that says keep calm the queen is coming this is how much spoiler culture has got us all terrified we can't even talk about a mug this <laughs> is a glimpse briefly in a TV show that's right uh, alright so Titan idea and all that but um, James being the, the ghost of three fact structure <clears throat> past has made me wonder if we can have a ghost of three fact structure present Helena Hara uh, probably give me like two seconds to find my all right, book. Three, three, to find you your book. The three <laughs> fact structure uh, yet to come. Yeah. While Helen and uh, Ben are furiously looking up some facts, as I said on last week's show, the 500th episode is coming up, and I Ooh. believe by the time you're listening to this, tickets may either be on sale or are about to go on sale on kingsplace.co.uk. Very, very exciting. As I outlined last week, it's going to be split into three sessions. It's an all-day celebration of the podcast, 10 years of the podcast, 500 episodes of the podcast at King's Place on Saturday, February 5th. We're going to start off at 12.30 with the first ever Empire Podcast quiz. James and Helen, they don't know this yet, but they are going to be each leading a team. Oh, I'm going to be the quiz master. It's going to be a lot of fun. Come along and some of you may even be dragged onto stage and be part of it. It's going to be tons of fun. In the afternoon, we have an entire session dedicated to the very best of the Empire podcast. That's not us just reading out bits we printed out and uh, trying to reenact them on stage. This is live versions of some of your favourite and maybe not so favourite segments from the podcast over the 10 years. So there's going to be a live three-fact structure. There's going to be a live episode of The Ranking and we're going to leave it to you guys to decide what we should be ranking. We're going to put it out there as a Twitter poll over the next couple of weeks so you can you can choose it for us, the topic. And there's going to be a live spoiler special where we'll be digging deep into a film, hopefully with someone from that film on hand to talk us through it as well. That's going to be cracking. And in the evening, there's going to be the fifth, I keep saying the fifth hundred. <laughs> the fifth hundred. The fifth hundredth, <laughs> the five hundredth episode of the Empire Podcast in all its epic mega long glory and glory not guaranteed glory not guaranteed <laughs> we're going to have reviews we're going to have news we're going to have Q&A with the audience we're going to have spot prizes we're going to have incredible guests again not guaranteed <laughs> incredible guests not guaranteed but we're hoping to have some incredible guests for that one as we celebrate our 500th episode and our 10th anniversary tickets will be on sale at kingsplace.co.uk if they're not on sale as at the time you're listening to this keep refreshing the page keep revisiting and we would love 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 to see you all there and, and frankly sell out because that yeah. would be amazing we sold out a long time ago <laughs> we have sold out a long time ago indeed um, property of Marvel Studios uh, anyway so Helen ghost of three fact structure present mm. what have you got um, I have a very cute little story about Dave Bautista that you may well have seen but if you haven't I think it's adorable and I think more people should know about it Dave Bautista has a collection would anyone like to guess what his collection is if Thimbles. you know it you can't guess Thimbles is not correct but it's not a million miles away Spoons Spoons is even closer but it's not right there is no Stamps. Spoons Stamps is further away, but, oh, but he's, still he's not teacups. a philatelist. Teacups is, again, getting closer, but not there. My mum collected uh, <laughs> teapots. Uh, that is interesting, but it is not Dave Bautista. <laughs> Dave Bautista, to put you all out of our misery, collects lunchboxes. You know those kind of 80s lunchboxes that you had as a kid, and it was a really big deal what lunchbox you would get right. for your new school year because you wanted the good one? I had 
I wanted a, a, a Return of the Jedi one, and my mum couldn't get me a Return of the Jedi one, so she got me a blue one so and bought her. some Return of the Jedi transfers and just put Return of the Jedi transfers on this shitty blue lunchbox, and I've never really got oh over it. Look, I mean, your mum loved you, clearly. I, I feel like that should be the takeaway. I mean, from that very she got points for effort. Like she went out of her way to, to, to make me happy, but I, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. It's like the time my mum and dad bought me a Liverpool kit for Christmas when mm. I was a kid, and they they didn't know, bless them. They just they weren't they weren't up in the ways of the world, and they hadn't bought me an official Liverpool kit. They bought me one of the cheapy ones you get down the market and I um, made them take it back and get me a proper one. Wow. Captain Entitlement. I got the wrong Care Bear for Christmas ones oh my uh, God. from Santa. No, Which one did you get? It wasn't my parents, obviously. It was, it was Santa's fault. Um, I think I got like love heart instead of love a lot or something like that. It was a big difference, yeah. basically. And, uh, and I cried. Oh my god! Anyway, that's a, that's a good fact. Anyway, that's all the fact. Oh. Th- these are just facts about us. They're not about yeah, Dave Bautista. These facts have to be quick because we got to move on. Dave Bautista has a collection of more than two hundred lunchboxes of that style, and the reason he has this is his second wife Angie had just gotten her first office job, and he wanted to buy her something nice. So ET was her <laughs> favorite her movie. E.T. was her favourite movie and he got her a vintage E.T. lunchbox in great condition. And she loved it so much she didn't want to use it like to bring it to work in mm. case she kind of damaged it or messed it up. So he just kind of put that one on display, got her a more like plain one to, to actually use for work. And that kind of just started it. And then he was at home injured and he started getting some cool lunchboxes. So he now has over 200 vintage 1980s where, lunchboxes. Where does he keep them? In his house. He's, he's, he's massively rich. I mean, he's rich. got a I'm sure he's big got, house. So he has a lunchbox room. He has a lunchbox room in yeah. his house, or at least a lunchbox collection. So yeah, anyway, so I just thought that was cute. That feels very much to me like his wife didn't like that present. And was just like, <laughs> oh, this is too yes. good for me to take well, to the leave end. it at home. <laughs> yes. no, I, I, that's a real thing. I mean, it literally came with the tags still on. So Aww, you can see that she yeah. might have been that's a bit so like, lovely. oh, I don't want to. Note an actual... Yeah. E.T. lunchbox, not a black lunchbox with E.T. transfers on it. Just no. Just oh my God! In case my You're mom her mother. Ben, her the ghost of three facts stretcher yet to come. Have you come up with anything? I have a fact that I've been waiting on for a while. So I'm, I'm using like a, actually what I think is a pretty decent fact. Is mm-hmm. this is this the good time to use my pretty decent Go fact? Oh, what are you saying? Yes. Mine wasn't. Oh. No, yours was good. It yeah. was nice. Um, <laughs> You're saying Thanos was wrong. What's going on? <laughs> okay, so mine uh, begins with a question. What is like the defining? Hans Zimmer sound of the last 10 years. Uh, this I will also say this fact is stolen from the Unspooled podcast. Oh. Which is very good. Thief, thief. James having never stolen a fact in his life. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> this may be the first fact he's ever come up with on his own. <laughs> in fairness. I mean, and it wasn't even a fact, was it? Hey, it was, <laughs> hey, it was entirely accurate. More of half an anecdote. Yeah. I mean, barely. <laughs> One third. I got an email from a man, was basically James's. A fan. man called Thanos. How is this not news? <laughs> anyway, so you correctly identified the defining Hans Zimmer sound as the sound. But Hans Zimmer did not actually define the sound with Inception. Uh, so I have a potted history of the oh. and how it didn't originate oh, please tell with us. Hans Zimmer. I, I want to be in the room when he pitched this to Chris Nolan. <laughs> so Hans, what are you thinking of for my for the music for my new motion picture extravaganza? Well, Chris, I was thinking of bang. <laughs> mm-hmm. I see. Mm. <laughs> Are you sure about that? You're did, committed to that? Did you come up with this yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, as yes. it happens, I didn't. <laughs> Chris Nolan just writing down good shit. <laughs> uh, so, the first teaser for Inception 
has the boah yeah. sound, uh, but that was scored by Mike Zarin, did the first two trailers for Inception. The only thing he'd been shown of the film was a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio on a train because everything was so top secret around what this project was. This was like, here's your inspiration, go. And so he was like, what does a train sound like? Uh, uh. <laughs> what can I do that sort of ties that in? We'll do a big boah. There had been a sort of proto-mechanical boah-esque sound uh, for a Transformers trailer, but it wasn't like a proper like Zimmer boah. So Mike Zarin did the first two trailers for Inception, kind of came up with that sound because of this picture of DiCaprio on a speeding bullet train. Uh, then the third trailer uh, was scored by Zach Hemsey, who did the first like official, like full-on boah sound. It developed over the course of these Please three Please keep trailers. doing that. And eventually, uh, Zimmer really liked it, and he interpolated it, he re-recorded it, and like in- integrated it into his overall score for Inception. And thus... The Zimmer Bois was born. Well, that's wow. a good that. fact. That's yeah. a good fact. I like that fact. I think it wins. Well yes. done, Ben. And this was. Zap. Uh, I think that uh, this was an impromptu three fact structure. It didn't actually mean to do it. Tight 19, all that. But uh, <laughs> oh yes, boy. yes. Uh, ben even texted today going, Are we doing three fact structure this week? Because it's four of us. And I went, No, that section isn't dead, but it's certainly sucking air. Um, it's got a gaping chest wound <laughs> and it's it's not looking good. I'm glad I was able to resurrect it. Yes. For one absolutely. final appearance. Except for we're doing it live. Oh, no. And who knows what that may lead to. You shall I'm going to have to call Thanos the publicist. And you may not be fact. involved. You may not be involved. This can be a long day. We can't do 10 That's hours, all, all of us. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm 10 to... hours is what you should be allotting for my three-fat structure. But, you know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this is why you're well, not doing three-fat structure. It depends what your Four you know, readers... gone seven years ago. It yeah. depends what your followers send you, really, doesn't it? How long it will take. <laughs> depends what books you've written between now and then that you can steal from. Yes, research. <laughs> all right, okay. I hate a mum and dad fight. <laughs> and, and they'll be fighting later on when we talk about West Side Story, no Spoiler. doubt. Because one person... Oh, no. All right, that's it for this week's Three Fact Structure. Time now for a guest. Who do we want? We've got Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Shut up, Spielberg. We've got got, (laughs) Nimi Ripass. And we've got Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield, who do we want? Let's go with Steven Spielberg just so that we can set him free. (laughs) Okay. <gasps> That's the sound of Steven Spielberg. That's <laughs> I, I don't know what just happened. Are you sure that Steven Spielberg you had in that package? That was the sound of Steven Spielberg being set free. Oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> oh, no, no. It sounded like just some random person you found on the street, Chris, and insisted was Steven he Spielberg. He said he was Steven Spielberg, Ben. I mean, he didn't actually say it. I kind of clubbed him over the head from behind then put him into a sack. But I'm pretty sure in that time... You saw a beard, you saw a I hat. saw a beard. <laughs> what have I done? Anyway, Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, we know him. We do. He is possibly the greatest movie director of all time. One of the most successful movie directors of all time. Is he the most successful? I guess he is. Pound for pound, dollar oh, for dollar. Three, two, one... Wah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was actually. <laughs> I thought that was going to be James Cameron. I thought it was going to be James Cameron. I know, that's what I thought as well. <laughs> but no. But instead, we got. <laughs> we were oh, all of us deceived. <laughs> because James just wowed at the mic instead. I love it if in doubt, just. <laughs> 
Why? Why would that be a thing? If you had a James Dyer action figure, <laughs> he'd pull his little string and he goes, Thanos was right. He goes, on the Pilot TV podcast this week, but we got the one that goes, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Oh, dear. Well, we, 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 well, we started badly. Sure, it went downhill in the middle. I think, I think, to be fair, if we're talking director, probably James Cameron, but because but, but, Spielberg produces, and let me just check, every single thing that comes out on big screen or small, mm-hmm. I think by sheer volume, he is probably the most successful. Yeah. All right. Also, okay. James Cameron, like, I love him, but like, he didn't make Raiders or Jaws. He's so. also not the most prolific. Like, you know. Yeah. Didn't make the Lost World Jurassic Park. No, he did not. And that is very much to his credit. Um, All right. He's really successful. Steven Spielberg, we love him. He is one of the greatest directors of all time, if not the greatest director of all time. And he is back this week with West Side Story, which is his remake of the 1961 Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins movie with, of course, music by Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein and (laughs) Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim. The late great. The late great. Well, they're both late great. Well, true, in fact, everyone involved with that is like great, yeah, pretty much, well, with except for Rita Moreno. Moreno. Yeah. Uh, but, but Stephen Sondheim is very recently like great, hands on. Very recently like great, yes, indeed, correct. Uh, anyway, Steven Spielberg, he's amazing, and um, he's got this film out, and he's directed other films. I might give him the, the build-up he deserves. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. E.T. E.T., the extraterrestrial. Jurassic Park. Schindler's List. Amistad. Lincoln, for God's sake. Some of the greatest movies of all time have been directed by this man, and now West Side Story. It joins the list, and I had the good fortune to catch up with them on Zoom last week, and we talked about West Side Story, and yes, because it's me, Columbo. Uh, And also, if you're a fan of the podcast, and after listening to this episode, I can understand if you're not... (laughs) But if you are a fan of the podcast and you have been intrigued by why I say three colleagues of such lethal cunning, there's a little Easter egg at the end of this interview just for you. Here we go. Steven Spielberg. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the director of West Side Story, Mr. Steven Spielberg. How the devil are you, sir? Um, uh, the devil's in the details, so I'm pretty damn good right now. <laughs> I've just told you that Empire has given your film five stars, so that, that, that's, that's not bad. I, I tell you, that is that is pretty darn great. I'm really thrilled to have just found out that out. Thank you for the news. That's fantastic. It's all good. It's all good. I mean, I'm sure you have been asked a lot on this junket uh, about the long wait in your career to finally direct a musical. But yeah, I have to. I have to know why. Why was the wait so long for you? You know something. I don't. You know, I've, I've questioned. I've asked that question to myself many, many times. Because it, it was always West Side Story I wanted to do. And uh, since I was 10 and saw the, you know, and listened to the soundtrack, not the soundtrack, but the original Broadway cast album, mm-hmm. right up to I saw the 61 movie by the brilliant, inimitable classic by Robert Wise and Jerry Robbins. Mm-hmm. And right through the stage productions I've seen over the years, it's just been my favorite musical. And the music has been in my life all my life. And it's been in the life of my children, too. Because when dad likes something, he wants to share it with the kids. And I got the kids humming it and memorizing some of the words and play acting some of the roles with my video camera going on weekends. And so it was just a matter of time. But that that actual that actual uh, tipping point between just infatuation and then commitment to uh, a reimagining. Uh, it, it didn't happen overnight. It just was the kind of thing that happened by very quietly asking questions. For instance, 
if I went to the estates, what would they say to me if I asked them, could I make another movie out of this? Mm -hmm. If I went to Tony Kushner and asked him, would you agree to adapt a screenplay from the original Broadway uh, musical, not from the 61 movie, but from the original source material, would you do that? I started making little quiet inquiries and I started to get a little bit of interest back uh, from Tony, who was interested theoretically and actually from Stephen Sondheim, who thought it would be interesting. Hmm. And that's what gave me at least a temerity to ask for a meeting with all four estates. And I went to New York and I met with I met with Stevens uh, uh, with Rick Pappas, Stevens lawyer and friend and representative. Stephen was not there for the meeting. He he chose not to be. And I wrote and I met with the other uh, three estate owners, the trustees from the Jer Jerry Robbins estate, um, um, Jonathan Loma and um, and and uh, David Saint from the Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book estate, mm -hmm. and certainly Nina and Jamie and Alexander Bernstein, Lenny's actual kids. And we all sat in a room for hours and met. And I simply had to sell my ideas to them. And I had to give them good reasons why it was time to bring this back out to a generation, sadly, that who ha hasn't really heard of West Side Story. Uh, um, and that was the generation I wanted to reach with this, because I think that West Side Story has clearly stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. And it's been around for 64 years. And it's going to be around hopefully forever. It stood the test of time. And it also speaks very much to our times now. And that must've been something that was, yes. that was very much on your mind also. It was very much so because it was really about in, in a, in a, in a different kind of way uh, in a more, in a more contained micro, you know, microcosmic way, what happens in the, on, on stage in the original production between the sharks and the jets is what is being played out today with the division that we, we are all super aware of in this, in this country and, and, and around the world. Mm, absolutely. And so, so you finally, decide to to make this you get the green light from all all the relevant parties you have been effectively as you just said there playing around with a video camera pre-fizzing shots for years essentially how much of the, the the sort of playing at home aspect those shots that you planned at home made it into the finished film well probably none of the shots i did with my video my little video camera at home got into the films <laughs> uh, sadly, uh, or not really sadly, I think I got on a learning curve once I committed to to, to tell the story and, 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 and mount the production. I, I realized that I needed to get on a learning curve because you can love musicals as I have all my life. Mm -hmm. I've seen every Arthur Freed produced musical that MGM ever made. And things way before that, during the gold digger era of the 30s, at, you know, post the Depression, the reason the musical was invented was post-repression. Hmm. Um, and I've, I've seen all of this, these things, but you can't be an audience and think or presume you can direct a musical. And so I went through a, a period of learning how to do this. And one of the ways I did it was, thankfully, we had four and a half months of rehearsal, dance rehearsal, uh, staging these numbers with Justin Peck, the choreographer, his, his wife and associate Patricia Delgado and Craig, who worked with both of them. And it was amazing uh, how I was able, while he was just putting the dance steps, he was teaching the steps and, and we were talking about how the choreography was another way of telling the story. It wasn't just we stop the movie to dance and sing and then we re resume the narrative. But the, the narrative is the dancing. The narrative 
is the, the, the Stephen Sondheim lyrics and the Leonard Bernstein score. It's the book. It's everything combined. It's all these disciplines combined to simply advance the story. And 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 so I was able to actually take another video camera and film over and over again in a rehearsal hall, each of these numbers until I felt confident I could pull this thing off. Wow. So so in terms of actually mounting these sequences, then what was the sequence that kept you awake at night, if indeed there was one? Well, it's called the quintet. Stephen Sondheim always corrected me when I called it the quintet. And he said, it's not a quintet, it's a quartet. Stop calling it quintet. But that's how it's been known for 64 years as the quintet. And Steve said, 64 years ago, I objected to them calling it that. Where's the fifth voice? <laughs> but uh, that was what kept me up at nights. Uh, that is an operatic sequence. Uh, less dance and much more action, which I'm accustomed to. But being accustomed to action surprised me that I was having so much difficulty mounting this musically because it had to be mount, mounted to the note. In, in other words, it's, it's, it's more about tempi, not film editing. It's all about uh, uh, the mathematics and the science of a musical. It's not just art. It's also a lot of math and science. And I'm not used to be constrained Mm-hmm. And being told you can't go past that bar of music, you can't go past that measure, you just can't do that. And I, I accepted that and that was fine. But that basically made me work in a different framework. I had to bring a whole different skill set to uh, to directing music as opposed to directing, you know, um, the Rangers landing on Omaha Beach. Yeah. In terms of in terms of camera movement, in terms of the actors blocking Everything in terms in terms of, 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 of the blocking of the actors, because I always wanted to block the actors the same way uh, Justin Peck blocked the dancers. Mm-hmm. And I because I never wanted that sequence to, to make us forget that we're in a musical, even though they're singing. I wanted even the blocking to feel like it was dance, even though it wasn't being expressed that way in that particular scene. So that was what kept me up at the beginning. But look, every sequence kept me up at night. There's not one musical sequence in this movie that didn't have me pacing my bedroom at three o'clock in the morning. I probably averaged and I'm not exaggerating. My wife will bear me out. I probably averaged about five hours of sleep a night for four and a half months filming this. Wow. in New York and New Jersey, and uh, which is okay, except when the film wrapped, I was sleeping 10, 11 hour nights to catch up after that. <laughs> so how was post then, Stephen? Was it a, was it a virtual breeze compared to, to the shoot? Yeah, it was. It was because I, I, I shoot most of my movies for the cutting room, mm-hmm. meaning I don't just arbitrarily set up a shot that I, and I don't have a place for it in the in, in 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 the substructure or the superstructure there's always a place for the shot and 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 a musical really sharpens that discipline even more so pretty much everything fell into place because I, I every single shot had a place in the broad musical narrative and so nothing was really could be taken out of out of sequence and put somewhere else like in a regular movie i can steal a shot and put it somewhere else and the audience doesn't know but in a musical you can't do that in fact, I want to talk about the the opening shot because you are renowned for amazing opening shots, and this movie is no exception. Can you talk about the planning of that opening shot, where it comes from? Is there a moment of inspiration that strikes you? Does it derive from conversations you have with, with Tony or with Janusz or with other collaborators? Where, where do things like the opening shot for this come from? 
Well, the 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 shot itself basically came from just my process of storyboarding, and the and the and in the the opening of the script describes San Juan Hill being raised by the wrecking ball in order to make way for the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. And the and in the script, Tony describes that 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 that, that this is where the performing arts is going. And there's actually a, a in the script, we had a, a shell of the of the main building already being constructed. I didn't want to do that, but instead I wanted a big billboard to show what it's going to look like, an artist rendition of the Lincoln Center when it's all complete. And I wanted the camera to be able to crawl up the sign. And so I did that shot first. We're crawled up the sign. And as we get to the top of the sign, we look at four blocks of amazingly constructed ruins of uh, part of San Juan Hill that Adam Stockhausen, our production designer, had built in Patterson, New Jersey, in a huge parking lot. Mm. And then beyond that, you can see right up to the Hudson River, and that's all digital. But everything in the foreground and middle ground is actually built. Was that's real? And then when I got to the what, what, and and then so that was what I had planned on doing, and I shot a lot of that already. I shot it in different, and I always wanted to have the camera come down to the very ground, and you see stones moving, and suddenly the ground explodes open, and it, and it's basically one of those, uh, you know, those those basement trapdoors. Uh, the, the disused because it's got tons of debris on it. And then we see action, the first jet that comes out of uh, uh, comes out of the hole. But when I when I later shot the end of the movie and I found a shot that basically uh, puts a fire escape in the foreground mm-hmm. for the last, I, I don't want to give anything away. Of course. But it, it, it does involve a fire escape and the camera slowly cranes up through an entire fire escape for the very last shot. And and shooting that, it suddenly gave me the idea that I needed a bookend. So I asked Adam Stockhausen, could he get a bunch of old, rusty fire escapes? And let's make a debris field of fire escapes from all the fire escapes taken off the buildings before they were demolished in San Juan Hill. So the opening shot then was augmented. And I added the shot of the camera going over all the demolished fire escapes lying on the ground until we get to the sign and then we're able to reveal what's happening. Yeah, it, it was tremendous. It, it also brought to mind, strangely for me, Saving Private Ryan in a, in, a, in a strange way. I don't know whether that was something that that was that was on your mind. It, no, that's that's good. It didn't occur to me, but but it starts in stillness, and Saving Private Ryan also starts in stillness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then it, it explodes into action, and explodes into dancing and music, as as you say. And one of the interesting things about West Side Story and its cultural impact over the years has been mm. this thing about the Jets clicking their fingers and walking along in time. And that has become both a cultural touchstone, but also something that has been very, very heavily parodied. And what I thought was really interesting is how quickly you reclaim that from parody. Was that something that, that you were aware of, that you know that, that this has been, you know, that, that movement has been parodied endlessly and that might have been a, a pitfall? No, I didn't care about the parody at all. I I didn't feel that West Side Story could exist as West Side Story without the clicking of the fingers, without the snaps. I thought the snaps is as important to West Side Story as basically um, Gene Kelly is to the to an American in Paris. And I, I, I just would not have been able to in all good conscience, not have the snaps because I wanted to be different or original. Uh-huh. There's a lot of conformity to the original stage play, which is what inspired us more than anything else. 
uh, when I was doing my storyboards, I only used the original Broadway cast album with Carol Lawrence singing than any of the other subsequent uh, uh, treatments, including the movie score. I only went back to the original cast album. Um, but that was very important, the snaps. And also, you have to understand that the characters are so different than the original stage play. The Jets really hate the Sharks. But the Sharks don't hate the Jets. The Sharks are putting up with the Jets. They're tolerating the Jets. Mm -hmm. um, um, a personal thing happens between Bernardo and Tony involving Bernardo's sister at, at, at the dance in the gym. Mm -hmm. but, but during all that and after all that and before all that, you've got these, these migrants from Puerto Rico who are chasing the American dream, and they've all got jobs. They're all working people. Anita's got a job. Bernardo's got a job. He, he wants, he's a boxer, but they all work. Chino works in adding machine repair. He's got a trajectory to success in his life. But the Jets are like fourth generation white immigrants, pretty much from dysfunctional families, many of them homeless, mm -hmm. and many of them who are sticking together because that's the only family they got. And they are actively aggressive toward the Sharks, actively. This whole thing starts because the Jets do something to their national symbol, which is very important to the, to, to the Puerto Ricans. And so, you know, when we hear the song in the, in the, in the quartet, I'm not going to say quintet in honor of Steve. Um, uh, when you hear, um, well, they began it. Well, they began it. Yeah. Well, it's obvious who began this. And that yeah. was a real change that we wanted to emphasize in our version of West Side Story. And you mentioned, of course, Stephen Sondheim, who, who recently passed away. Uh, and I know you struck up a, a, a late friendship with him whilst whilst making this movie. Um, his lyrics are so dense and so complicated. Did that present in itself a a particular challenge to you? No, not a challenge at all. The lyrics were were a gift uh, a gift to the ages, the ages of anybody who loves storytelling through music, whether it's opera or musicals. It's a gift. Now, Steve, uh, you know, always wanted to compose, not just write, write, write the words. And so both West Side Story and Gypsy were jobs he took. What, what he would really wanted to do was do company and Into the Woods and, and Sunday in the Park with George and, and a little night music, you know. And, uh, 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 but he was convinced by his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, some mentor, by the way, <laughs> to take the job he was about to turn down when, when when Arthur Lawrence introduced him to Leonard Bernstein, he, he needed the, the night to think about it. It was all ready to say no until Hammerstein said, look who you're going to be working with. Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Lawrence, you're working with, with Jerome Robbins. Are you crazy? You must say yes to this. But um, so I never felt that, that Steedmer felt that West Side Story was his favorite work. Uh -huh. It's when he started to becoming a non, a nonlinear experimental uh, composer artist that where he really started to change the culture of, of theater. Uh, Stephen, I don't have a lot of time left with you, but uh, so I wanted to ask about something else, if I, if I may. I don't know if you can see just behind me to my left, I've very carefully but casually placed a, a painting of Peter Falk as Columbo. Uh, <laughs> just, oh, just behind oh, me. Oh, there. there he is. Oh, <laughs> you know, somebody, I've, been looking, I've been looking at you and I've not, and there he is. I can see it plain there as day. Absolutely. There's Peter. I haven't had Lieutenant time to put it Columbo. on my wall yet, so I have to, I have to prop it up there. <laughs> but, uh, but obviously Columbo, the murder by the book, played such a, a, a big part in your early career and I'm a huge Columbo fan. I just wanted to ask, about your experience on that, your experience of working with, with Peter Falk and, and, and almost crafting that character. 
He was great. He, he got a big kick out of me because I was so young when I directed the opening. I directed the first show of the series. I didn't do the pilot. That was done a year before. Mm-hmm. But I did the first show of the of the series for NBC. And and I just remember he got a big kick out of me because I was really young and I looked younger than my actual age. And <laughs> he really took me under his wing and he was great to work with. And because he was trained by John Cassavetes and he was he was he was expecting surprises. I was a surprise to him and he went with it because Cassavetes did nothing but throw him surprises on all the work they did together. I also knew John very well where Oscar Hammerstein was the mentor to Stephen Sondheim. John Cassavetes was my mentor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked on a couple of his productions as as a production assistant. And uh, he really checked in with me and he kept in touch with me right until the, the, the time he passed. Wow. And Peter knew that, that John liked me. And because John liked me, Peter, I think, liked me. And we got along great. Amazing. Amazing. I would love to ask you more about being uh, John Casavetti's production assistant. I'm, I'm sure there's some interesting stories there, for sure. Yeah, I got, I got yelled at a lot by almost everybody, but that's okay. <laughs> that is okay. <laughs> it was worth it. Absolutely. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you is, this This may be a little obscure, but but, but go with me. We'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, so. On the Empire podcast, I have, over the years, started referring to my co-hosts as my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, which is a reference to The Last Crusade. The Last Crusade, of course. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask if you have any memories about that line. I'm presuming that was maybe a Tom Stoppard line. Yeah, Tom Stoppard wrote the text to Empire, to, to, well, Empire of the Sun. He wrote the whole script. Mm. He wrote uh, 95% of the scenes and dialogue uh, for the last crusade. And that was definitely uh, from Tom Stoppard. And he, I'm sure uh, found that in his lexicon of, of uh, just being so well-read and being so versed in, in the literary arts and in Shakespeare and Moliere and so many other things. Mm. That was something that I didn't even understand what it meant when I directed the movie in 89. I just thought it was a cool line. I didn't know what it meant. I had to get older and wiser and more well-read to figure out what Tom had said (laughs) meant by that. It is such a cool line. So well said. Yeah. Three challengers of such lethal cunning. Uh, I oh, love it. That's a that's a good Sean. That's a good Connery. I tell you, that's I, good. I, I can do pretty much every Sean Connery line from Last Crusade. <laughs> but sadly, we have to wrap. We have to wrap. Steven Spielberg, it's been a pleasure once again. Thank you so much indeed for your time. So great talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, so that was Steven Spielberg. We will be talking about West Side Story later in the show. <laughs> Everyone's out of time. <laughs> Now it is time <laughs> for this week's listener question, which comes from someone that's on my DMs, I'm pretty sure. But the the question was, while I find the person's name, about the best example of someone saying Merry Christmas in a movie. Hmm. Yes, I know the right answer to this. Thanks. So do I. Hopefully. Me too. Me three. Okay. Wow. Um, I'm interested to hear your take, James. Let's have that. <laughs> it's James's answer simply. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Indeed, that would be my answer. Well, are we talking actual, the words Merry Christmas, or is it simply the sentiment? The words. Let's make it difficult. The words, the delivery of the words Merry Christmas. I'm going with the sentiment anyway, because I wish to say that the best best way to wish someone sort of season's greetings uh, and a festive period is absolutely to write it in red marker, on a sweatshirt, on a dead body, in a lift. (laughs) 100%. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho. 
Ho. Mm-hmm. So in, in other words, not the phrase at all, or anything <laughs> even vaguely near it, nor is it spoken. <laughs> I try and be non-denominational with my question answers. Someone does say Merry Christmas yeah. in, in Die Hard, don't they? I mean, they must say, but John McClane doesn't use it as a kiss-off point at any, you know, he doesn't scare, he doesn't push someone down a lift shaft and go, Merry Christmas, does he, as their back is broken. Not that I recall, no. But I do like, of course, the last, you know, this is how they spend Christmas, I got to... Was it? Be here for New I, I got to be here, here for New Year's, Year's which is Argyle's last last line in in Die Hard. I'm pretty sure someone does say Merry Christmas in Die Hard, but uh, but there is a good one in Die Hard too. Dennis Franz goes, you know, when he rips up the parking ticket yeah. at the end, he goes, "What the hell? It's Christmas," which is which is good. I like that. It's not Merry Christmas, but yeah. you know. Yeah. It'll do. It's good. It's good. I have an actual Merry Christmas, Please. which oh, I think God. has a claim as the best Swat. one. Okay. Um, which uh, all I due... think I know what you're going to say. I almost want to like write it down or something. Yeah, like before, on okay. like on countdown, okay, and then yeah, we can I'm reveal if we have the same workings. Okay, okay, you keep writing that down. Got it. Got it. So mine, uh, all due shout out to John Nugent, who is the biggest fan in the office of this film. It has to be specifically Home Alone Two, Lost in New York, Ugh. the film within the film. Angels with even filthier souls. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. The delivery, the the end of that whole set piece where he just does the thing that he does in the first film again, but like more and better and with Tim Curry. That, that is my pick. Well, I wasn't specific. I didn't specify Home Alone 2, but I Ooh. did write down, let the record show, I, I showed you it to James. You did write down Home Alone. Because write down Home Alone. Home Alone 1 is, keep the change, you filthy animal. Whereas this one is specifically, oh, Merry Christmas, Some in-depth Home Alone animal. knowledge. Wow. I'm in the Chris Hewitt camp when it comes to Home Alone, in that I don't see the point of them. Well, for more on that, tune into a future episode of Bad Home Alone. <laughs> oh God, here we go. Ben, do you wish to push the Disneyversity podcast while you're here? How do I crowbar in Disneyversity this week? I will find a way. Available now on all good podcast um, apps. Of course, you're all wrong. The, the correct answer is Merry Christmas, you old building and loan. <sighs> Merry oh, what, Christmas, you old building and loan. In the finale of In the Heights, <laughs> when they use that as a lyric in the song. Yes, that's the, you know why Lin Manuel Miranda uses that as a lyric? Because it's in the West Wing? Because it's the greatest. Yeah, you know why it's in the West Wing? <laughs> because it's the greatest. <laughs> It's in it's so in many things. Everything, you know why? Because it's the greatest. Well, it's the oldest. It's fine. It's the best. It's is it though? Yeah. I don't think it's the oldest. I'm pretty sure people said "Merry Christmas" no, before 1946. No, I've looked it up. Yeah, wow. that was okay. the first time. Anywho, George Bailey for the win. Bit of Bailey's Christmas. Everyone loves that. But does anyone have anything else? I mean, I love National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So I'm going to say there's a couple of moments in that. Merry mm-hmm. Christmas. Shitter was full. That is a <laughs> fantastic one. But there's that great bit where Clark. Um, is giving some throwing some shade. He's being very sycophantic with his with his boss and his work colleagues as they all file out of the office. Mm-hmm. He's going Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And then as the 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 underlings become less uh, important, he starts going Merry Christmas, kiss my ass, kiss your ass, kiss his ass, kiss her ass, uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's good. And then of course there's his massive rant at the end mm-hmm. in which he goes Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Holy shit, where's the Tylenol? All that sort of stuff. That's an amazing, amazing Chevy Chase rant. In terms of ranting and raving with Christmas greetings, uh, the end of the Muppet Christmas Carol, Michael Caine, Scrooge, oh, yeah. oh. having had his turnaround and, and sort of yelling it out the window. And oh, that I, every time I go to rewatch Muppet Christmas Carol every year, I get closer and closer to the point where I'm just going to be sobbing the whole way through mm. because it is so pure and so good. It's very good. The, the end of the speech at the end of Scrooge as well about the sort of meaning of Christmas is mm. also very good on that mm-hmm. on that front. Bah. 
Humbug. Oh God, I've oh, just thanks. promoted it. <laughs> Pilot. TV. <laughs> Disney. Versity. <laughs> Anything else? Jimbo, you must have, uh, they, must, they must talk about Love Actually. Um, they must mention Merry Christmas. I was, I was, actually, I was just thinking what particular scene from Love Actually could I put out? One of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. But, does, uh, uh, does Andrew Lincoln have it on his cue cards for Kira Knightley at the end when he... he yes, oh, he does. He does. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't force myself to use that isn't as a it, best. Isn't actually like, oh, it's Christmas and at Christmas we tell, tell the, the truth. truth. Oh, that is right. It doesn't <laughs> Just say Merry Christmas, does it? Yeah. No. Yeah. At Christmas, yeah. I'm going to dramatically undermine your marriage because it's Christmas. My best friend. Yeah, it's yeah. more because it's Christmas than Merry Christmas. Creepy, but, stalky, uh, creepy guy. Christmas, oh. stalky Christmas, inappropriate Christmas. Oh dear Lord! All of oh, these things are true. God, that movie. The actual it's amazing. delivery of Merry Christmas in this moment is not iconic, I would say. But um, the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, when Harry and Ron wake up and Harry's got Christmas presents mm, for the first, the first time in his time. life, yeah. and they're saying Merry Christmas to each other and he gets the jumper. That is that's, cute. I, I mean, it's not Merry Christmas, but Call Off Christmas is definitely one of my oh, favourites. Obviously. I mean, that's brilliant, yes. isn't it? Call Off Christmas. Is yeah. it Call Off or Cancel Christmas? Call, call off. off. Call Off. And no more scraps for... Lepers widows and orphans. And, and widows Lepers and orphans. orphans. Lepers and orphans. One of the two. And is this Alan Rickman or Boris Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, it, he's, he's sexy, so it's definitely not Boris Johnson. Yeah. Also, I think Boris Johnson didn't actually call off Christmas. Mm, he, that was the point. He, he continued Christmas yeah. very much. When he yes, shouldn't have. Just well, no, he called off Christmas for everyone else. Yeah. Yes. yes. All right. Okay, I think we're pretty much there. But what about Judy Garland? Have yourself a merry oh, little God. Christmas. I mean, that's one of the great Christmas songs, and it's so sad when she sings it because they're they're leaving their home and they're moving away and ah, oh, but it's the moment that convinces her dad that they should stay in St. Louis and not move after all. Oh, it's brilliant. But George Bailey is still better. So there you go. Okay. But what about the amazing bit in Force 10 from Navarone where a character says to another character and a Merry Christmas. That's a great moment, isn't it? When that happens in that movie. Who, who can forget it? I've basically typed Merry Christmas into the IMDb, IMDb quotes, quotes search yeah, and um, I think everyone could come tell. up. Hmm. Everyone could tell. I think so. All right. What about that episode of The West Wing where someone says Christmas cards? You sent a Christmas card to everyone who writes a letter to the West to the White House. Can anyone name that episode? Yes, it's, I think it's the season one Christmas episode. Which I can't is, remember the which name. Which is of the called Dulce Jubilo. No, it's Nick Shelsey's Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's Day. Yeah, it's the one that uh, it's the Emmy, the Emmy winning one from it that season. It is actually um, uh, season two, oh. episode ten. Uh, okay. It is Noel. Inex- oh, that's that's the Josh uh, PTSD episode. The f- season one one is the one where Toby finds the business card in his pocket from the homeless man oh, who's died. Yeah, and then season two is Josh, which is very much in the shadow of two gunmen, and uh, he's dealing with his. He's associating yeah, music with music sirens. Music with, with yeah. the sirens, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He that's can't even listen to Adam Yo-Yo Ma. Adam which is great, yeah. And Yo-Yo Ma uh, rules. Uh, yeah, that's right. All right, okay, that's enough Merry Christmas. <laughs> I'm calling off Merry Christmas now. Uh, and that is it for this week's listener question. I am so sorry. I have not found the name of the person who sent it in to me, but it was definitely via a DM. S-clause. It might have been an S-clause. Maybe that's why it's disappeared from G my Bailey. from my DMs. <laughs> yes, Mr. G. Bailey of Bedford Falls has sent this in. <laughs> Uh, I can't find your name. I'm so, so sorry. It has been supplanted by Hawkeye and Last Night in Soho questions. Uh, so if it is you and you hear this and you're going, you motherfucker, you haven't given me credit for that question, slide into my DMs again and I will give you credit on next week's show, which is, of course, the last of the year. We're all going to be wearing Christmas jumpers, aren't we? Are we? Okay. We are. Sure. I've cool. just decided. We're going to be wearing Christmas jumpers and nothing else. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> what about Christmas socks? 
Yes, Ben, you can wear just a sweater and Christmas socks because that will help. I have a lovely <laughs> pair of... Um, Steady. <laughs> <laughs> Sprouts, bubbles, sweaty balls. <laughs> oh, it's Christmas time and everyone just can't wait to tuck into my sweaty balls. Uh, no, I am I have a lovely pair of Liverpool socks. Liverpool... <laughs> Liverpool FC festive you know those big slipper socks uh-huh. I bought them last time I was at Anfield wow. and they they have kept me warm through this recent um, incredible winning run of the Reds anyway okay uh, that's the listener question okay happy Shall days so we, we can move on to barrel news. straight into movie news or let's, do you want another guest let's have another guest because we have three alright so we have Numi Rapaz yes and uh, Andrew Garfield. Yeah, let's have Numi Rapaz. Numi Rapaz. All right, Numi Rapaz. She is fantastic. She is, of course, this uh, wonderful Swedish actress. She was the star of the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy, which brought her to the attention of Hollywood. And she's made films like Prometheus and Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows. Uh, But now she's going very firmly back into the arthouse bosom this week with the frightfully demented Lamb, in which she adopts uh, a lamb. It's more complicated than that. Trust me. But yes. Uh, So Beth Webb spoke to her this week. So I haven't heard the interview yet, but I don't believe anyone died or indeed got kidnapped and wrapped in Christmas paper. So here we go. Numi Rapaz. Tremendous fun last time she was actually here in the studio, sitting in Helen's chair. So let's hope she's equally as fun now. Ha ha! Cut to really depressing interview. (laughs) Enjoy. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you. Me too. I'd love to start by asking you about your character Maria in the film um who is this very lonely woman who is then she's she's given this kind of twisted miracle that happens to her and it's such Mm. an interesting ambitious storyline and and such a layered character as well and I wondered what your in was you know how did you step into her wow I mean it was very much um I did speak to Valdemar a lot we had conversations maybe for a year before Right. But um, it was a very internal preparation, just going to a place in myself where it's like understanding or feeling myself or imagining the worst possible scenario, you know, losing a child. And I have a son and, you know, that is totally the worst thing I could absolutely imagine. So just going to that place in me um, was really brutal. And then we build the whole backstory to her and like, you know, when things happen and, and how they dealt with it. And when she last time saw Pietur, um, um, and, and like kind of mapping out everything that happened because she's so sparse in, in what you see and you don't, you know, she doesn't speak, she doesn't share anything really. So I really had to have it all in my, in my body. Valdemar, he, this is his first film. It's, Again, just such an ambitious concept and so unique as well. What was it about him that you trusted to do this? I just felt like, you know, he came to my house and gave me this, you know, kind of presented this project to me. And he he has so much uh, dignity and he's so calm and he's so... Um, He's very precise with what he wants and how he sees things. And he's very visual. Like he had his like lookbook mood board that was just mind blowing and disturbing and scary. And I was like, and I I just felt like, you know, he knows exactly how he wants to shoot this and he knows exactly um, why 
he wants to tell the story. And I just felt so safe with him. So I was never worried. And I, you know, I could, you know, see the worry in my, in my team's face when they were like, you know, when I told them I was going to do this film, they were like, wait, what? He's like a first time director and it's a movie. Like there's no money. They're not going to pay you at all. And it's like, you know, it's an Icelandic movie about a farming couple with like a weird, like lamb baby, human baby. It was just like, it sounded like the worst idea ever. And you had, so you had babies and lambs as stand-ins for Ada on the farm. And I mean, aside from what I imagine to be boundless patience, what were you tapping into when you were acting off of both of these kind of stand-ins that were being swapped in and out? I mean, I had to be really patient. It was amazing working with, you know, to have Ata being there, um, you know, alive and 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 acting with me. That it was not just a a dummy or a puppet, and you know, CGI and tennis balls and green screen. So it totally made it. You know, she it felt like she was there with us. But it was tricky. You know, I've never we had to. It was a different way of working, and and because it's also, you know, it's a very, as you know, there's like no words really. It's like very, very little dialogue in the film. So, um, you know, you kind of had to. What, what I felt happened after like a week or so, I kind of tuned into other way of different ways of communication, and maybe a more physical. So, you know, like you know, kind of tapping into the way animals move around each other, and you read body language and energies rather than relying on words. I know you have a little bit of farming experience yourself from when you were younger, but, you know, aside from this, as you say, this kind of percentage of a film that was presented to you, what were you doing to help prepare for the kind of tone of this film, for the darkness and and also the kind of practical elements of it as well? What went into the preparation? I, I mean, the... I learned how to drive a tractor. <laughs> I saw the farmer deliver one lamb before it was my, my, my turn to deliver a lamb. So I didn't have much time to practice because I was, um, I was away shooting um, another movie. And I just, I got, got to Iceland like on a, on a Sunday and on Monday morning, I was like driving a tractor and, and delivering baby lambs. So it was quite full on, but you know, because I did grow up on a farm, I kind of had a lot of, um, that that was my life when I when I was a kid, you know, n- not really delivering baby lambs and driving a tractor, but like being outside and just being around animals and and being far from from city life and from the comfort of being in a city. And I know that you so you um, create playlists a lot of the time for the characters that you play. I was wondering if you had one for Maria and and if so, what was on the playlist? And was it a collaboration or was this something you went away and did by yourself? Uh, uh, me and Valdemar created it together. Um, let me pull it up and I can read out for you. And <laughs> uh, see what we have. Uh, ma'am. I love Spotify. It's like the best thing ever. <laughs> uh, okay, so we have. So the first one is Listen Before I Go, Billie Eilish. Um, and then Here's to You with Ennio Morricano and John Bias. It's like a 60s song, like an old song. Yeah. And then we have um, Humanity Gone with Gessa Feilstein. Um, he's a French DJ. <laughs> and then Pretenders, um, I'll Stand By You. And then I mean, some Maria, Maria Callas, some Portishead, 
some Laura Marling, that's Al Valdemar put in, when Port said, some Daft Punk, Tom <laughs> York, Pantogram, Bronsky Beats, and then some weird Icelandic stuff that you wouldn't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Massive Attack, some Uncle. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything in here. What was I mean? That is quite a mix. What was <laughs> what was tying all that music together? What what was that playlist sort of saying to you when you would sit down and listen to it to get into character? I mean, some of them came from Valtimar, and I was always I'm always surprised by that man. We had a party in, in Cannes when he was DJing, um, <laughs> and it was like you know a prodigy and really kind of hardcore weird like, <laughs> and he was dancing like a madman, and I was like. He's a quite quiet. You met him, you know. He, he's yeah. quite quiet and like shy, and then all of a sudden, this like dancing beast comes out. Um, <laughs> so he's he's a man of surprises, and a lot of the the, the songs that would be maybe popping out of the list is from him. <laughs> so then I just like you know, then it becomes almost like a a beautiful mystery for me to figure out like why <laughs> he put it in there and like what does he want to say with this. <laughs> That is, I mean, that is a revelation about him. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, there's been such a response to to Arde. I know that people have kind of reached out to Valdemar to say that they'll pay, you know, any amount of money for for to have a version of her. What What do you think the appeal is with with her? I think she. She's done in a way where you can, she becomes whatever you want her to be in a way. You can read in so much to her, to her eyes and her face or facial expression. And it's almost like, you know, people have a very strong relationship with their dogs and with pets. And I, and I think it's a little bit the same with her. You know, she, she is what you, what you need her to be. And also the movie is very universal in its, in, in its sense that it's very, I feel like it's a it's a story, it's a family drama about healing. And I think a lot of people can tap into it. And especially in times now, maybe when when you know the isolation and and it's you with yourself and and maybe that's something people do connect with stronger now during like this crazy times we live in. What would you say is driving you at this stage in your career because this was I know that you describe your your career as before and after lamb you know such as has been the impact of this film on you but what what is driving you would you say you've got this myriad of of other projects coming up that are so varied I know that you're especially excited for Django as well I'm I'm so excited to see that but but yeah what is driving you what are you looking for at this stage in your career it's the first time where I'm not running. I'm not running away from anything and I'm not running towards anything. And I'm happy with being in the now, which is like quite rare and, and, and surprising for being me. <laughs> so I feel like I'm very, um, I want to work with people that really inspires me and people that wants to investigate the things I'm interested in. And I have no, I'm not, stressed about anything I don't feel like that you know that I, I guess I've been around that long so I'm like I've, I've done a lot and I've proven a lot to myself and I'm not um the desperation is kind of out of my system but the passion is there so I feel like I'm in a place where it's like I I'm gonna wait for the perfect project now I've turned down I don't even know how many films I've said no to a lot of things and I 
and I'm producing a couple of things and putting things together and 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 kind of focused on really um, collaborative pieces and and working with directors that I've been admiring and wanting to work with for a long time. That would be my next my next step to be more hands on and be more um, more specific and really um, not rush into anything. Um, really kind of stay faithful to this to this new knowledge that I have in my body. And I mean, are there any stories? I know that you're working on stuff as a producer as well, but I mean, are there any stories? Are there any characters or people who you really want to embody that you've not had a chance to yet? I mean, you've you've got to work on some films and, and projects that have such a strong inbuilt audience and play characters that already mean a lot to so many people. I wondered mm. if there's, there's anyone that you haven't tapped into yet whose story you'd really like to tell. Mm, interesting. I mean, we are working on um, Hamlet that um, Sean, who wrote um, Lamb for me, um, he's writing it and <gasps> And Ali Abassi is directing it. And um, I saw Ali's film Shelley years ago. And then I saw Border. And it was just, I think he's an incredible, mind-blowing um, um, director. Just crazy talented and so brave and so so bold. Um, so that is, I mean, I would say that is kind of something that I'm very, very excited about. And it's very much alive in me and just got the latest draft sent to me yesterday, I think. And I was like, I'm in the middle of this kind of crazy press tour. Give me a few days and I'll read it and get back to you guys. So that's something, um, you know, it, it, that, that is definitely a dream project for me with people that I admire and, and love and um, that inspires me. So, so that was Hamlet? as in it's Hamlet, yes. And I'm um, playing Hamlet. Yeah, oh, yeah. my goodness. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, how I'm, I know that you're very early on that, but I mean, how how are you starting to approach that? I love that it feels feels so alive in you. And Border, <laughs> you've seen you've seen Border. I know there's there's certain things in that that you'll never be able to unsee. <laughs> what, yep. What it burns it burns a, a mark in your it's like tattooed into your brain. <laughs> yeah. Um. But but so what what can we expect from that from from what you've seen already, or what you've read um, already? I'm not allowed to say anything really, but I'm very, very excited. And just the combination of people, like, I mean, Sean is one of the most incredible writers I've come across. You know, he he's, he wrote uh, The Northmen for Robert Eggers and he wrote Lamb and he's an, an incredible poet. So anything he touches just turns to some uh, crazy, magical, like dark gold. <laughs> and... Uh, and and the combination of him and Ali Abassi is just um, um, again it's about you know um, energies and chemistry together. So that with Hamlet is just um, I'm very 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 excited. But I'm, I can't I'm not really allowed to say anything about it yet. <laughs> Amazing! No, that is that is wonderful. I'm really excited for the the Northman as well. Next year is going to be great. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. And then I guess I just I'd love to know, because I know that Django is something that means a lot to you as well. I mean, how are we what can we expect to see from Elizabeth? And and is this your first time working on a Western in this way as well? I'd love to know what you. It is. Yeah. And I love Western. Westerns is like my favorite genre. Um, um, It's one of like I've been I was obsessed with Westerns when I was a kid. I saw like the last Mohican, you know, 
um, you know, and the um, um, dancing with wolves, you know, or like I was obsessed, like anything that came out in that field was just like, I was like kind of digging into it and just watching it over and over. So I've been wanting to kind of do a Western for for years. And then when they asked me to come on board on this one, I just got back. I've been filming nonstop for more than a year. I was like, just need a break. And then they came and offered me to come on board and do Elizabeth. And I was like kind of trying to avoid it. And then I had a conversation with the with the writers and the and the director of Francesca Comancini. And I was just like, oh no, I'm falling in love again. <laughs> and I was like, and Elizabeth is just um an absolutely crazy character i love her she's one of my favorites she's she's you know i would say she's the villain if you, if you would say so but with a big broken bleeding heart and she's there's so much desperation and so much um passion in her and she's just incredible so it's been pure joy and and very hard at the same time <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that. I'm so excited for, for Hamlet from what you've told me already. And, oh, it's just been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Numi. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Bye. Okay, so that was Numi Rapaz, and we will be talking about Lamb uh, once James and Helen have stopped arguing about West Side Story <laughs> in the review section coming up very, very soon. And now it is time for this week's movie news. What has been mm. happening, folks? Has Hollywood been dropping the big shocks or are they shutting down for Christmas? No, there, there's some stuff going on. There's there's some stuff. I mean, uh, in terms of surprises, I guess you could say that uh, Carrie Scogland standing in for Paddy Jenkins on Cleopatra is perhaps a bit of a surprise. So Coming at you. Um, no, not that Cleopatra, the the other one. But but I mean, she will be ultimately, which is which is exciting. Paddy will still be producing the film. Um, the plan is that Gal Gadot is going to star in it. Last we heard, but but yeah, Carrie Scoggins now taking over as director. She of course uh, worked on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and it seems like basically Jenkins is focusing all her efforts on a third Wonder Woman movie right now, and kind of clearing the boards of some of her other projects. Because Rogue Squadron doesn't look like it's happening mm. either, it's, does it? Yeah, it's been completely moved off the calendar for now. It's gone so, rogue. Yeah, as it were. So um, this one, you know, fingers crossed it, it it's cool and, and good and everything. Um, the script is by Leita Calagridas and, uh, you know, Cleopatra was amazing. She was an incredible leader of her country at the time. She managed to negotiate against the Roman Empire successfully, which most, you know, comparable leaders at the time did not. So she's... Um, it's, it's going to be pretty good stuff. But um, it's also kind of a big step up, I think, for Skogland in terms of her work. I mean, she's obviously done big stuff on the MCU. She's worked on The Handmaid's Tale. But um, it's good to see her get that big step up to a major budget um, movie like this. So, yeah, still happening. That's good. Hmm. That is good. Interesting. What yeah. else has happened out there? The biggest news of the week by far and the thing that my brain is screaming about Across the Spider-Verse Part 1. Yeah. Yes. Who saw the Part Spider 1 coming? News. Yeah, exactly. So Which happy. I would be sceptical about the whole Part 1 thing if we hadn't have had recently the most incredible superhero two-parter. And if this wasn't a sequel to Into the Spider-Verse, which might be honestly one of the best movies ever made, mm. and also didn't come with a trailer that was like two minutes of eye-sizzling gloriousness... That trailer that they put out for Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 is like everything you loved about Spider-Verse cranked up to the max. Like you could feel 
with that film, them kind of really fleshing out and kind of going really creative with that visual style. But the confidence that they seem to have with this one to push that even further to just fucking go for it is everything. I'm so excited about this. Do you think they're just doing a Mel Brooks, like History of the World Part 1, and actually it's just my film? (laughs) It it would be very meta and that would fit the tone, but surely. And I think they've said, so uh, Part 1 is coming at some point next year and Part 2 will be 2023. So we Mm. won't have too long to wait Mm. between those. Yeah, it is. It looks fantastic. And it's also like it's such a confident um, teaser because it it's mostly a little character beat between uh, Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales. It's not, you know, a f- quick flurry of, oh, here's, here's all our coolest action scenes. It has the confidence to say, look, these are our characters and you love them and you mm. cannot wait to see them again. And that is true. And, and Miles, like, notably aged up a bit. Mm-hmm. He's definitely, like, a slightly old teenager now. He was probably, like, a, a tween, effectively, I would say, in the first one. Maybe, what, like, 14-ish? Yeah, 13, 13, 14, 14 think, whereas yeah. this one, he's, like, a slightly older teenager. Even Not even the Puberty crazy sits. visual stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but like there's that beautiful shot of, of Spider-Gwen just standing like horizontally on the wall outside his apartment and him peeking out the window. Just all these things that we love about Spider-Verse mm. are just very much present and correct. Mm. I'm so excited. Cannot this. wait. Very much so. So new directors in this one, Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, who of course co-directed Soul and Justin K. Thompson, but it's still uh, Lord and Miller on writing and producing duties. Dave Callahan has joined the writing team on that one also Shemik Moore Hayley Steinfeld and Oscar Isaac of course because I can't believe you haven't mentioned this Helen Miguel O'Hara woo yes Miguel (laughs) O'Hara is in that Spider-Man 2099 which if you never read that run there was a run of years and years ago now I guess it is of, uh, of Marvel 2099 comics which were comics set in a future universe set in the year 2099 they had they had Spider-Man 2099 they had X-Men 2099 they had all sorts of Fantastic Four uh, some of them were great some of them weren't so good but I loved that Peter David uh, written run on Spider-Man 2099 and uh, yeah very excited to see him in mm. this universe I wonder as they get into the uh, the Spider-Verse whether they might fall into the live action uh, first and whether we might see Oscar Isaac's Spider-Man 2099 meet Oscar Isaac's Moon Knight or whether we might see <laughs> Hayley Steinfeld's Gwen, Spider-Gwen meet Hayley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop and you know, then we're, everyone was going to be pointing at each other <laughs> at this point. Uh, I am wildly excited about this movie. There was other great Marvel Cinematic Universe yeah. news. Mm-hmm. Of course there was. It's us. We would make it up even if there wasn't any. It uh, is destiny. It is. Des- destiny. Okay. It is your destiny. Daniel dread it <laughs> run from it yes Destin Daniel Cretton arrives yes all, indeed all the time mm. um, uh, yes because so he's going to be definitely directing Shang-Chi 2 mm-hmm. uh, as well as he's doing the MCU TV series he's developing as well so he's got his hands full with lots of little Marvel goodness but this is exciting news yeah absolutely Legend of the Eleven Rings Legend of the Twelve <laughs> Rings I don't know yeah. what they're going to do but it's exciting it sounds like the TV thing he's developing is like a sort of slightly comedic slant so immediately I'm imagining that this is a Morris spin-off possibly Morris oh. and Trevor Slattery um <laughs> There was also uh, MCU news with Kevin Feige confirming that Charlie Cox will be the MCU's Daredevil, although he hasn't specified where. So everybody is now watching every episode of Hawkeye and, of course, Spider-Man No Way Home with eagle eyes, Mm. waiting for a familiar lawyer to turn up and, you know, Mm -hmm. then turn out as Daredevil. Hawkeye episode 6 or Spider-Man into the what's it called? No Way Home no way <laughs> Spider-Man, no Spider-Man way home. into the No Way Home into the No yeah. Way Home what's your money on? where, 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 Spi- where will we get our first glimpse of Cox? Spider-Man I think 
Yeah? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think, I think, I, I don't want to get into spoilers. I think Hawkeye is going to introduce us, not make a big deal of it, introduce us to another character um, or reintroduce us to another character that we may have seen before. Okay. Yeah, in the we're being very careful series. here. Yes, yeah. good. Yeah, I like um, it. I don't necessarily think it's possible, but I don't necessarily think Charlie Cox is going to show up there. I think he is going to show up in No Way Home, though. I think that's I think that's likely. So you think Disney Plus might not be the best arena for people to get the first glimpse of Cox? It'll be on the big screen. Mm. Ideally, in big, IMAX. I mean, we, we yeah. already have big, seen Cox big Cox before. are better than than small Cox. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it depends really on on the role and what oh, he does right, with it. Sure, really. Sure, so sure. you know, it's it's all about the the, the performance and the writing. <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> that is exciting. All right. Anna de Armas. Anna de Armas has mm. replaced Scarlett Johansson in Ghosted opposite Chris Evans, which is a romantic adventure movie. Yeah. I'm I mean, look, he's he's worked with both of them before and, and mm-hmm. obviously done very well opposite both. So uh, as swaps go, I think that's all right. Dexter Fletcher's gonna direct it. Hmm. That's exciting. That is good. That yeah. is exciting. Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick are going to Write the script, the plot details. Have. Yeah, because uh, uh, yeah, it starts filming in February. Oh, oh God, good on, good on Dexter Fletcher for that one. Uh, and of course, he's worked so many times with Scarlett Johansson. Perhaps he said, look, I need someone who I know. Because um, otherwise, I, I, you know, because you've taken Scarlett away from me and I don't know what to do. And now he's like, oh, yes. Cause so it's either, it's either, you know, Sebastian Stan or Anna de Armas. So let's <laughs> go for Anna de Armas. Well done. Well done, everybody in fault. Hurrah. Yes. Anything Tom else? Holland is going to play Fred Astaire in yeah. some kind of biopic. We know very, very little other than Tom Holland being, I think, at the Spider-Man photo call. And he was like, I'm going to play Fred Astaire in a thing. And that's it. Um, that's in the thing. Know. Fred Astaire. <laughs> in John Carpenter's <laughs> The Thing. Or maybe, what was it, the the, the prequel to John Carpenter's The Thing, just yeah. called The Thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I'm a superhero for this. I think he's actually not a bad visual match. He's more handsome than Fred Astaire was. But not he's not like as wildly. tall or thin, I would say. He, but he's not—he's not—he's he, not short or fat either. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not quite as willowy. You're right, but he, he's a bigger, like you know, frankly, probably even in better shape yeah. uh, than even Fred Astaire was. And but uh, mm, I don't think. But he's not n- enormous, you know. He's not, and he is a dancer. Uh, he I, is a dancer. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait for the scene where Fred Astaire dances to Rihanna's umbrella. I, I think that's going to be really like just special. That's going to be his Oscar moment. Yeah. And and now that we've mentioned that, you all have to watch it again. That's the rules. <laughs> that's the rules. We don't make up the rules here. No. But uh, yeah, if, I, Fred Astaire. He was a particular body type. The closest mm. thing I can think. The person I would like to see play Fred Astaire in a Fred Astaire biopic would be the Pale Man from Pan's Labyrinth. That's pretty much... (laughs) He wasn't super tall. Was he not? No. I don't think he was. He He was just very slight. He's he's a very, very slight guy. Um, I wonder, I just, I'm I'm interested to see what they do with this because it could be like his working relationship with Ginger Rogers. He was paid about three times what she was for a lot of of their films together. Um, Yeah, but he did it backwards and in heels. Or was was that her? (laughs) (laughs) It could be about his sister, um, Adele, who he worked with a lot in in his... Adele? Adela oh, okay. was her name, um, who he worked with a lot and who actually married into the, um, oh, those really rich dukes in the north of England, um, uh, Derbyshire, uh, the house they used at the end of Pride and Prejudice. Anyway, it'll come back to me. But um, yeah, she, uh, she had a really interesting and tragic life. So there might be a sort of relationship drama there. Uh, there's a lot to be said. And of course, he was famously, Fred Astaire, almost rejected from his first audition. It was um, can't act, can't sing, can dance a little. Hmm. Was the verdict on him? He can dance a little. 
he can dance a lot as well. Mm. So, you know, it worked out. And that person then went on to uh, listen to the Beatles uh, and reject them and then read Harry Potter and reject that. Um, oh, speaking of Harry Potter, first images out of Daniel Radcliffe and uh, Rupert Grint and Emma Watson sort of reunited for this Aww. reunion special that is happening on New Year's Day. That's coming out and sorry to get into pilot territory, but that has been confirmed to be on Sky or now over here because yep. um, it's an HBO Max thing. But yeah, those three all sat in the Is this how you're spending together. your January 1st? Undoubtedly. It drops <laughs> on HBO Max at the stroke of midnight, which will be, what, like 5am here? I don't think I'll be up. Well, maybe I'll still be up at 5am. You are Probably young. not, because I'm probably going to have a very low-key new year. But I will be getting up and I'll be watching. It Harry will be Potter heartwarming. Yeah, will. I mean, I, I want to say it. Yeah, I think I think one of the things, like, I, I did a lot of the interviews, not all of them, but a lot of the interviews for our wrap-up on the Potter phenomenon for the final film coming out. And it really does, you know, it did come across as very much a family. People mm. who had, you know, worked together for 10 years and had formed these relationships and who were all good people. You know, there were no bad apples in the bunch. I think, you know, we've all often talked about it in relation to Marvel, but it's very, very true of Potter as well. If you if you know there's at least a possibility you're going to be working with these people for a decade, there's a real incentive to get good people who you mm. don't mind working with mm. and they are all good people and I think it's just going to be really cute. And I think even though in some ways it's sort of only been 10 years since Deathly Hallows mm. Part 2 but I think between all of them they've done a lot of distancing themselves from Potter in that mm. time yeah. whether in like the acting roles they've been taking or whether they've been maybe doing less things or, or like Emma Watson doing her um, activism, and, so activism and, and all of that. So even though it's sort of only been 10 years, it feels like actually a pretty significant gap since mm. they've actually like been open to talking Potter again. So that's yeah, it's a lovely awesome. thing. Yeah. All right. Just a couple of really quick last things. Dave Bautista, we started talking about him earlier yeah. on. He is collecting lunchboxes, but he's also starring in the new M. Night Shyamalan film, which is called Knock at the Cabin. Uh, and about it, of course, little is known other than the title. So will he be the one who knocks? He may be the one who knocks. He may be the danger. Uh, or he may be something else entirely. Ooh. He may be the cabin. He's He's got the range. <laughs> no, he, he is a large man. He is not wooden, but he could play a cabin. Will the cabin make you old? <laughs> <laughs> the cabin is next to the beach. Thandy Way Newton has joined Magic Mike's last dance, uh, which is good news um, for, the, for it, for her, yes. I think, both. Um, and Jennifer Lawrence and Adam McKay's Bad Blood is yes. moving to Apple. Yes, indeed. Which is the... Thorandos movie. That's the one, uh, if you haven't... Uh, Thorandos was right. No, very much <laughs> uh, not the case. No. Um, so Elizabeth Holmes was the sort of, quote-unquote, girl boss entrepreneur who who launched this company, Th- uh, Theranos, which said it was going to disrupt medical testing. So the idea was you'd have this simple, like, one drop of your blood, pinprick blood test, and it would tell you everything that was wrong with you and analyze everything about you. Um, and it would be this medical miracle. So you could basically just go into your local chemist and do a one drop blood test and it would go, oh, you're at danger of diabetes. You should try this. And But you don't have to worry about that, you know. Uh, the problem was it was all pretty much bullshit um, and none of her technology worked or did what it said it was going to do. And they raised millions and millions of dollars and uh, essentially came up with nothing. So it's a fascinating story. The book, Bad Blood, it kind of chronicles a lot of it. Uh, she, uh, Elizabeth Holmes herself is on trial at the moment as we speak. But uh, it's a question of, you know, how when did people know that this stuff wasn't going to work? When did it become clear that there was something wrong with this? And was there an active sort of cover-up or an active fraud? 
um, as to as to the technology. But um, it's going to make an interesting story. So yeah, it's it seems like very very much in Adam McKay's wheelhouse, to be honest. Indeed, indeed, uh, very much in your wheelhouse. Actually, not in your wheelhouse, Helen. Cover your ears. Oh no, cover your ears. Okay. I'm covering my ears. Okay, I still have my headphones on. I can still hear. Damn it. <laughs> this has gone badly. I haven't thought this through. Uh, Colin Farrell is going to play the mm. penguin in oh. a TV show. Mm, he is indeed. Yeah. Colin Farrell working, yay. Colin Farrell playing the penguin, less yay. I mean, there must be something in that character to make him undergo those prosthetics, or he, else he really hates how he looks. He look. <laughs> God, I hope he's not. fucking gorgeous. He's he fucking will gorgeous. be. He, he will be beautiful. great. He will be. He will. He will be very good. I'm sure. I'm excited to see what he does with the penguin. I'm also going to be spending the entire time the penguin is on screen, mourning the fact that I'm not actually looking at Colin Farrell's usual face. Don't objectify him, yeah, Helen. Helen. Okay, I apologise, Mr. Farrell. Are we sure it's the penguin and not just a penguin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Helen would hate that too. That's I true. would. That you would be would. worse. You monster. <laughs> I've seen Helen punch waiters before because she thought they were giant penguins. It's it's well, a problem. Just that couple of times. It's, it's a real problem. Uh, anyway. What uh, oldie timey restaurants are you two going to? Uh, <laughs> Mackie D's, <laughs> Burger King. <laughs> what, the waiters aren't in black tie at all the restaurants you go to? I mean, last I time I was at Nando's, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been to a restaurant, having said that, with with waiters in the old-timey get-up. It's a shame. Oh, you should do. It's fun. Is it? Yeah. All right. Anyway, that is it for the movie news. Look, Helen, we're on course for a tight line to... Yes, can come believe, on. We can, can do it. such a thing? We can do this. Time for one last final guest. We've got Andrew Garfield or Andrew Garfield. Who do you want? Ooh. Um, could we do Andrew Garfield instead? Let's do Andrew Garfield. Oh, I was going to say Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Uh, well, he's good too. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> Andrew Garfield. It's been an Andrew Garfield year, hasn't it really? He was the star of Le Mama Miranda's Tick, Tick, Boom. He may soon be seen. We don't know. We genuinely don't know. We haven't seen it at the time of recording in Spider-Man No Way Home, which of course opens on Wednesday, but we haven't seen it. They ain't shown it to anybody before uh, next week, so we will review it on next week's episode. But he is the star of Mainstream, which is available right now on digital for you to take a look at. And in this cautionary tale, three people struggle to preserve their identities as they form an eccentric love triangle within the fast-moving internet age. And if you think I haven't seen the movie and just read off the logline on the IMDb, then you are exactly right. Uh, however, James White, Jaime Blanco, our West Coast editor, our man in LA, has seen mainstream and did speak to Andrew Garfield recently. And here is the interview. There may be some sound issues with this. I've been I've been told to expect some possible sound issues. I hope there are none, but should there be some, prepare your ears accordingly. Here's Andrew Garfield. Enjoy. We are thrilled to be joined on the Empire Podcast today by uh, one Mr. Andrew Garfield. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Happy to be here with you and and uh, excited to talk with you about whatever you want to talk about. Well, glad to hear it. Well, let me start out by asking you about mainstream and one scene in particular in which you run around Hollywood Boulevard clad only in some sort of nude underwear and a fairly sizable plastic phallus. Uh, <laughs> can I just ask about where that scene came from and and how it felt actually doing it once you got into it? Because it's one thing to either read it on a script or talk about it with the director and then boom, you're doing it. Yeah, I, I also just really appreciate how you describe the, the size of the phallus. Um, because we as men, we are very, very careful with um, how we uh, how we um, publicly measure penises um, so, so as not to give away anything. Um, it's uh, for, for the sake of each other and ourselves. 
Um, and it's fairly sizable. I think that was a very diplomatic way to express it. Um, <laughs> but moving on from that, it was, um, it was one of those strange, liberating kind of moments where it was weirdly my favorite scene to shoot of that film because there was no acting required. And I grew up loving jackass and those kinds of things. And the kind of, the weird kind of profane gutter humor profundity of what those guys did. Like it's true art to me and it takes so much courage. It's like um, a willingness to be totally vulnerable, totally naked or and literally naked in the middle of a crowd is uh, just for the sake of a, a laugh is the kind of definition of what it is to be a clown really the you know the old archetype of the fool so for me it was a very liberating thing to be able to to given the opportunity to to do something that you would never choose to do apart from if you had lost all sense of reality so to do it in a safe way was so i say safe because you never feel fully safe when your your butt cheeks are hanging hanging outside in the middle of hollywood but um yeah, and I remember Agia, uh, the director, Gia Coppola, she said to me after the first day, I think there were tears in her eyes. She was so ecstatic. She was so happy and moved and just hugged me. And, she, and I was like, so are we doing it again? She was like, wait, what? You want to do it again? And I was like, I would, I would do this all day. It's one of those things where, you know, once you do it once, it kind of just feels like the most natural, like, reality changes. It's like, oh, no, that's a new reality for me, that I'm able to do that. It's just so wonderful and so exciting. So. I loved it, man. Like, yeah, of course I was terrified before, but it's in that way of when you're about to jump off of a, the, the edge of a cliff and you, you, you know that the water's deep enough to catch you, but there's a part of you that doesn't. So it has that kind of thrilling aspect to it. Oh, it was just so fun. At the character of Link himself, there's obvious sort of parallels with, with the Logan Paul sort of thing. Johnny Knoxville himself, who shows up in the film uh, in, in a little sort of cameo in a role. But there's also, it feels like it calls back to people like Andy Kaufman and people like that would absolutely go to a length. Most other people wouldn't even dare to, to, to get a reaction, to get something, to get some, to get some truth. Is that, would you say that's fair? I think that's great, man. I, and, I, and I think Andy Kaufman as well is, is the kind of the perfect reference. And yes, of course, to honor Johnny Knoxville and, and, and give him a role in the film was, was a really cool thing because he, he kind of consulted with Gia about certain sequences and how to shoot them and how to capture it in a way that felt kind of in that organic kind of way. Um, and then, but no, I think Andy Kaufman is such a great example because he, yeah, as you say, he was someone that was just, I don't know, kind of um, dominated by, by um, his esoteric weirdness and by this kind of forever pull towards further and firmer, further extremes of uh, you know pushing the boundaries of of reality and um, making people question the very nature of reality and to you know be a, a, that disruptive force in the within the mundane to kind of lift the veil for a second uh, of the matrix that we're all living within and to kind of take a like take a good look at each other and all of our vulnerable nakedness and kind of chaos and then to bring the, the veil back down again after, you know, winking at each other for a second. I think that's what he was so genius. At. I don't know if you've read his, um, or the, the book that his, um, his partner wrote, Bobby, um, I forget his name now, Bobby, um, I, don't, I forget. They, they, they were partners in crime and it's such a, Bob, Bob Zamuda, Bob Zamuda. Um, it's a yeah. great autobiography and it, it's so, it's so, um, it's just a great read of, a, of, of about, um, about him and, and Kaufman, but mainly, 
and these guys. Oh, it's my doorbell. One second. Oh. Hold on one second. Let me just mute you for a second. Okay. Um, I just shouted at someone. Um, I, uh, okay. um, no. So like, it's just such a, it's such a great piece of, you know, nonfiction of people creating fiction all the time. And just with total devotion to the joke, like beyond like to the point where of course, you know, like when he died, people were like, when's he going to come back to life? Because this is all part of the thing. <laughs> like the genius yeah, of getting true. to the point where you, you have people convinced that you, you faked your own death is a pretty extreme devotion to, to, you know, that thing that they were called to. Yeah. And I think link is very similar in that way where, he he'll go he'll go into the belly of the beast to find find out what the hell is going on in in, in himself and in in the world and then and to hold a mirror up to what we're doing. So I, it was a really exciting character to craft in that way. Uh, he represents yet another character that you're playing, where you love to sort of leap around different ideas. He's you, you're someone who doesn't ever really want to be pigeonholed. At least that's the way your career has come across. You you really have played so many different characters. And at the moment, you're in a real run of these fantastic characters. Uh, one that's that's literally coming out now is is the is Tick Tick Boom. And you're working with Lin-Manuel Miranda to literally play a character based on someone who inspired him to become uh, the the musician and the musical genius that he is. So was that something that you just thought to yourself, it's a huge challenge. I'm going to go for it. I absolutely want to do this and to work with Lynn. Definitely. Yeah. It was, an, it was one of those very rare moments where you go, Oh, this is a no brainer. I have to say yes. To be honest, even before I heard what Lynn wanted to do, the fact that Lynn wanted to do something was enough. And uh, because I'm just such a huge admirer of his, of his and I, the opportunity to study with him and to learn, from his process and to see what makes this incredible creative mind, you know, tick for want of a better word was, was kind of everything. And then, and then of course, and I knew whatever he wanted to do was going to be special. That's a given. I knew it was going to be deep. I knew it was going to be full of, you know, nuance, complexity, passion, and love. And that's what I'm here to do. I'm, I'm, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to spread, you know, stories that will be, meaningful for people and that will remind us of who we are and what we can be. And, you know, and, and for me with, with, with being introduced to Jonathan Larson and, and, you know, the creator of rent and, and tick, tick, boom, and to be playing that part, it was like, Oh no, this is a guy that created so many, um, so much art, so much work at which, whose sole purpose was to create ripples, create ripples of healing and joy and love in the world. And to remind us of our, of our interconnectedness, to remind us, of our own souls really. And to remind us that we all have a very, very specific, unique gift to bring to the fabric of, of, of existence. And he was an advocate for life. He was an advocate for a life full of meaning and passion and uh, community. So, I mean, there's, there's no better story to tell. And uh, what's wonderful about it is that he was constantly rejected. This isn't a story of a success. This is a story of a man who is facing just a, you know, an excessive amount of failure and rejection and then getting up the next morning and carrying on singing and writing anyway. And thank God he did because he died at the age of 35. He didn't get to see on the first night, the first preview of, of rent. Okay. He didn't get to see yeah. anything that he, any harvest, you know, he didn't get to receive any of the praise, any of the, 
the the love or the joy or the um, kind of um, appreciation, or, or, you know, in, in in real life that 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 he ultimately his work went went on to receive. So, but thank God he kept on waking up and showing up at the keyboard and at his um, you know music pages because if we, the world would be a far less rich place if, if he had given in to that um, rejection and that failure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've also got Jim Backer in, in the eyes of Tammy Faye. It feels like they're all characters in some way linked by trying to get a message across, but ultimately facing challenges or their own sort of personal failings in some ways, their own personal issues that just bubble up. So yeah, yeah do you feel like they're all linked in some way? I mean, that might be the extent of it. And I think maybe, maybe two, maybe I would say that Jim Baker was a, was maybe a more misguided kind of he, he was maybe following the wrong god uh if you know what i mean like you know i and i think he he followed the wrong god god all the way to extortion and prison and and thank god <laughs> thank the right god because uh we can only we can only figure out who we are where we are if we are brought to our knees and jim was someone who was brought to his knees for for following the wrong voice in himself greed avarice and uh, a kind of a sense of not enoughness he really bought into the whole you know, toxic cesspool of um, ego and, you know, external validation, fame, money, power. He, he was following the wrong God in that way. Whereas John, you know, was such a purist, such a kind of, um, you know, a kind of, uh, he was happy and fine to live in poverty so long as he could make his work and sing his song, which happened to be full of soul and was, which happened to be full of real spirit and then with Link, there's something in between, which I find really interesting, where it's, it, it's almost like a Kanye West type figure who can straddle the id and the ego and he can live, he can live in heaven and hell and he can bring it all, all of his humanity, all of his chaos, all of his order. He's, in, he's someone that is, is so unbridled in his expression that he becomes a lightning rod and, and, and for everyone's response, you know, for everyone's own demons or angels you know i think for want of a better word so i think link lives in that in between that place beyond that amoral place you know he's he's operating from that unconscious which is an amoral place which which doesn't have a kind of uh, a form he's really just pure id and uh that was something that is exciting because in one breath he can say something very profound and very true and very wise and in the next breath he can he can destroy it. You know, it's that kind of mm. trickster quality, which I found really kind of exciting to, to play with. Yeah. And I don't even know what he wants to express, but I think he is, ex he, all, that, all he knows is that he needs expression needs to happen. And it doesn't kind of matter what is being expressed so long as he gets to express, which of course is deeply problematic for a, a society and deeply prob problematic for, um, in, in terms of the people that we give platforms to, you know, like when the, when the object, when the objective is just to, to say shit, um, then we're in trouble. It's like famous for being famous. You know, it's like saying stuff yeah. just for saying stuff. And it becomes, mm -hmm. of course, you, you know, he starts to serve the same master that the majority of people end up serving, which is for attention, for clicks, for, you know, to, to make one's name, no matter how, whether it's through a great piece of art or a, or a sex tape, it doesn't matter as long as you're looking at me. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's also about this disruption thing that we've got going on either in business or in just in life, these influencers going ahead, doing their thing. It, it feels very much of the moment of, do we know exactly what the outcome of all of this is going to be?
is it going to help society? Is it going to harm society? It does feel that way. Yeah, it's chaotic. We're in a very, very chaotic time. Um, or maybe just the chaos is is on the surface. Um, but no, I do believe that we're in a phase of, um, you know, in, in terms of the cycle of our species where archetypally it's, it's um, you know, uh, that it's, it's what, what do they call it? Um, the Kali Yuga, I think they call it in, in Hinduism, where, which is where, where everything falls apart and darkness actually starts to be the, the, the predominant kind of force in the world. But the good news is that, you know, I mean, like people think the apocalypse is the end of the world. But I, my understanding mytho- mythologically is that it's just, it's the end of a period in the world. So there's a new dawn that is coming. I'm not sure whether it will be in our lifetime. It feels like you and I will, 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 will live and die within, within this kind of dark, chaotic apocalypsis. Um, but yeah. maybe, you know, our kids or our grandkids will, will, will enter the world inheriting, um, you know, uh, a greater light. That's, that's the prayer anyway. Um, and the, also, I think the good news is, is that what the world isn't going to end. I think that's what people get a bit confused about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we might end, yeah. but the world won't. <laughs> like the earth is such a strong, hearty, yeah, meaty um, life force yeah. that is just so much more powerful than we can imagine, I think. But, but you know, we might, we might singe ourselves to death and that's on us. <laughs> that's our own issue. <laughs> Well, on that literal bombshell, <laughs> I will say thank you so much, Andrew Garfield. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Best man, of luck. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so that was Andrew Garfield. Spider-Man No Way Home is in cinemas <laughs> on Wednesday, December 15th. A mainstream is out right now and Tick, Tick, Boom is on Netflix. Do you think he's going to be in it? I know, we'll, I we'll find out. The poor man has said several times he's definitely not in it. So, mm. there you go. The mm. Maguire doth protest too much? The Maguire? <laughs> the Maguire. Oh my God. The Garfield. Toby Maguire confirmed <laughs> on the Empire podcast. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, let's talk about films that uh, we have seen and that are out this week in cinemas and, of course, on your sofa plexes as well. And then start with the return of the big dog. And I don't mean Clifford, the big red dog. We'll get to that later on. <laughs> I mean Steven Spielberg. It has Woo. been, how long has it been since Steven Too Spielberg directed the movie? Too effing long. Mm. But he is back, back, back with West Side Story. Hells Bells, author of Empire's glowing five-star review. Mm. Tell us about West Side Story. Yeah, so this is, right, the story is the story. I feel like Officer Kropke in the middle here. Let's all dance and shove them around the room. (laughs) Okay, this is, um, yes, this is West Side Story. You may have seen the original film. If you haven't. No spoilers. Yeah. Good luck with that, Ben. Good luck with that. Um, This is based on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And again, you may not know what that means, but if you do, you'll know what's coming. Um, But it's about uh, a, a small neighborhood in New York's West Side in the sort of post-war era it's all being redeveloped actually to make way for the Lincoln Center where West Side Story where West Side Story would play in 1968 guys just fact fans but there are these two rival gangs the Jets who are kind of Italian-American and the Sharks who are Puerto Rican Jets thank you Um, Sharks thank you they're fighting for supremacy Um, they're led by the Jets are led by Riff who's played by Mike Faist who's fucking incredible in this um, the sharks are led by Bernardo who's David Alvarez and they're all planning a rumble to figure out who gets this territory <laughs> sorry I rumble. Know. it's called a rumble I Let's can't help it let's get ready 
Oh my god. <laughs> Anton Decker not in this movie. Uh, although I think that not. would have been a sixth star. Yeah. And then but in the middle of all this, Tony, Ansel Elgort, who is kind of one of the sharks, although he's trying to sit it out at the moment. And Maria, who is Bernardo's sister, played by Rachel Zegler, they meet, they fall in love. And this like heightens all the tensions because like they're not allowed to because there's like love across enemy lines. Oh no. In the heightens all the tensions more like. That's all it also does. This is, for my money, a better film than In the Heights, and I don't say that lightly. Helen, I'm coming for you. <laughs> I have it's no skin on. in that game. <laughs> it is uh, it is a stunningly made film. This is like Steven Spielberg has taken everything that was good about the original film and then fixed many, many, many of the problems with it. They, he has kept the sort of the expressionism. He's kept the dance fighting. He's kept the amazing music. <laughs> there are so many bangers in this musical. You have no freaking idea. You say how that, I hear Ruby are. Roundhouse, but carry on. <laughs> You know, um, he has made, I think, the Puerto Rican characters more rounded and less caricatured than they were in the originals. They are actually played by Latinx actors here and not Natalie Wood with some fake tan. That is a massive um, improvement. The uh, The casting generally is off the charts good. I said Mike Faced is amazing. Uh, David Alvarez is amazing. Ariana DeBose as Anita is off the charts. Absolutely. Absolutely amazing. incredible. Hashtag Team Anita. <laughs> yeah, she's she's brilliant. Um, he's brought back a Rita Moreno as, uh, he's got basically kind of... Gender kind swapped. Of, kind of, yeah. yeah. So there was a character called Doc. A character called Doc is mentioned here, but it's yes. his widow, Valentina, that we yes. meet. And that's Rita Moreno's He gets Moreno's all the stuff that Doc got that to Doc do. That Doc got in the original. But she is, she's fantastic. And she's this link to the past and the sort of the the you know, the heritage of this musical, which is brilliant. It, I just loved it. I loved it from the opening shot, which is kind of this crazy sort of sweep across these ruined tenement buildings. By the time that America happens, the big number, I want to be in America, mm-hmm. I was lost. I was absolutely lost. I do have problems with it. I do think that it's hard to care about Tony and Maria in mm-hmm. the middle of all this because they are clearly complete fucking idiots Tony Stark and Maria Hill <laughs> never I've, I always care about them I think you also mentioned this in your review there is a period where Maria comes across as an actual sociopath yeah which is slightly but she's like young and she's in love and she's an idiot so I feel like that's you know probably not uh, unrealistic I but I don't care I don't care because it's a stunning stunning amazing film and I love it to death for me <laughs> the thing that stood out is that Spielberg feels so so energized by this like there's been all this talk of how long Spielberg's wanted to direct a musical for Mm. and you feel that so much throughout the film like Helen was said was saying the opening sort of tracking shot and the whole opening like prologue sequence introducing the uh the jets the America sequence the way he's flinging the camera around it's like it's showy but it's classy at the same time there's so much like life and vibrancy in those song and dance sequences and i really like a lot of spielberg's recent stuff i still i really liked ready player one i had such a great time with that but this is something where you can just feel him really leaning into the material and going i am i've been waiting for so long to do this it feels like not maybe to the same degree but you know when you saw Fury Road for the first time and you were like I can just feel how much this film was bubbling up in George Miller's head and it's just like flooded onto the screen like what was in his head is just bleh, splashed onto the screen I had a similar feeling with this mm. where it was like I, I I could just feel how much 
Steven Spielberg's vision of what this would be, what his musical would be, what he would do with West Side Story without totally reinventing it, but like tweaking a few things and like zhuzhing up um, mm-hmm. the, the song and dance stuff. It just like floods out there and I was really swept up in it as well. Mm. And the casting, like you said, Mike Faced, Ariana DeBose, good God, is Incredible. amazing. I thought Rachel Ziegler was brilliant as well because Maria mm. is an absolute like head case for half of this film <laughs> and she really sells you yeah. she really She's sells you adorable. on it and yeah. she has I mean her singing is incredible but she has that like she has a groundedness a slight steeliness but she's also got the big like wide-eyed thing she's perfect casting for Snow White mm. when they do that live action Snow White because she's going to have that sort of big doe-eyed thing and the incredible voice to go with it she's got a great voice she mm. is unreal obviously the voices across the charts are are, mm. are really really good like Ansel Elgort is not my favourite actor but he looks right for this and his voice is very very yeah. impressive he he lands those big numbers I think he's um, got more of a I would say he's got more of a Broadway voice her voice is almost operatic and I, mm. I didn't wasn't sure that those two meshed together quite as well as I would have hoped if you, I mean, if you listen to the original cast recording, which I unfortunately have quite a lot of, of it, this, of, uh, no, of the of the original oh, okay. Broadway show, it's, it, it's Maria is a very operatic part. It's very high. It's very full, and I think you, you mm. need that in there. Okay, but yeah, uh, I stand, I stand corrected. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know, I know what you mean. Um, uh, vis-a-vis Ansel Elgort, uh, but. I think I think it worked. The moment where they fall in love is a beautiful moment, mm-hmm. cinematically speaking. Uh, I think there's been a lot of talk about how Rita Moreno is basically nailed on to win Best Supporting Actress for this role, which of course she won in for the original one for for playing Anita, yeah. and now she may win again, and that would make that would obviously bring things full circle. But for me, the standout of this cast is is Ariana DeBose, and would that make it the first time as someone the same role has led to two Oscars I don't know Oscar experts can can fill me in on, on that one but for me she really pops and sparkles and shines and she can sing and she can dance she was the bullet of course in, in the original Hamilton Queen Elizabeth the first I think it's not quite the same though, I know is it, it isn't but it, it, it might be the one that's okay. It might be the record that they're going to look at. Anyway, All right. okay. um, I, I would agree actually that yeah, I think I think Rita Moreno has the edge because of the story. Hollywood the, the loves story the, story there, for, the story for an acting campaign. Does, for me, does not the performance I, is I, good. I but, agree, I agree. Yeah. But the I, I think the performance is very good. But I think the story is very compelling, and that does tend to sway Oscar voters. Okay. But yeah, Ariane DeBose is off the charts. She's just amazing. Well, James has been waiting very, very patiently. James, of course, who is a hater of fun and enjoyment and musicals, loves Les Mis. This is no Les Mis. What does it say about Les Mis? I'm going to come in and stab one of you. I can't disagree with most of what you said. It is incredibly dynamic and and the filmmaking craft on display is is kind of unassailable. But... It's not for me, is what I will say. I'm, I've never been a fan of the West Side Story songs. Call me dead inside. Call me a cold husk of a human. You're dead inside. Um, you're, you're a cold, cold husk, husk of a human. human. <laughs> All of these things may be true. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> that was the, Funnily enough, that was the noise I was making all the way through this film. Um, <laughs> I really didn't enjoy myself watching this. Like, I, I, I did feel a bit like the, the, what is this, like three hours long no, at least? Four, five, seven? <laughs> like, and let's be generous and say there's five to ten minutes of plot no, in this film no. um, so it's not what I would call plotty you might um, have you might, so you're basically saying hey Mr. Shakespeare I've got notes <laughs> there's a lot more going on in Romeo and Juliet than there is going on I in mean, this film now this is Romeo and Juliet isn't. light now now 
bear with me. So, so, <laughs> so take into account that I don't, I'm immediately, I'm, I'm, it's a very long film with not a lot going on. So I'm slightly alienated there. I don't like the Disagree. music. You've also got a problem. Disagree. Uh, and then uh, we come to, this is what I want to dig into in a second. <laughs> I know, I know we got to let Helen go in a second, but before you carry on, the music in this movie. Yeah. I, d- I don't. I can't. Leonard Bernstein. Sure. And Stephen Sondheim. Fine. What's wrong with you? Great. I mean, Some look, the... I can, I can, I'll give you, I feel pretty. I don't like it either. Oh my okay? God, that song you... makes me want to hurt someone. Yeah, it's okay. so annoying. So pretty. But somewhere, are you, mm. are you mental? America? Like, I mean, it's America? fine. I, but it's more irritating than anything else because I couldn't get it out of my head afterwards. But I don't find it in a good way. It was kind of in an annoying, earwormy kind of way. I'm not, I'm not I know it's not Taylor Swift. It, it I, is no Taylor Swift. You're quite right. But, 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 but let's get to the one thing I think we can all agree on is that there is a casting issue and it is answer. Elgort. Like, I don't think he is good in that role. I do think he is miscast. And putting him opposite a girl who looks about 15, because Rachel Ziegler, who is fantastic in this, but she looks very young. He is a foot and a half taller than her. And when he's climbing in through her bedroom window, I'm just going to say there is an ick factor to that that I found it quite hard to get past. And the only thing I think that went in Ansel Elgort's favour is the fact that Bar Maria and Anita, everyone else in this story is so fucking hateful that it's not you, you You can kind of Tony's unlikable but there a lot of the characters are unlikable it's very hard oh, to root for most I, of them I, I find so I was like disagree. do you know what yeah. fine this is the thing that I think it does really well and I it's been so so long since I've seen the other film version I saw it on stage growing up mm. but like that was ages ago as well I can't remember how much of this is already in there and how much was in the, the Tony Kushner screenplay but I think it does a really good job of selling the shark's predicament and the the sort of Puerto Rican story of they have their neighborhood and they don't want to like let it go that they have claimed their sort of patch of Manhattan and but the at the same the jets, time yeah. the, the the jets like the the sense of disenfranchisement mm-hmm. and why they feel they they are having to scrap for their side of it too and at the same time the fact that they are basically scrapping over nothing over something that's not going to exist mm, yeah. there's a, a level of nuance in there and a level of just thematic resonance that actually does still feel very yeah. timely that i thought was really really smartly done 100% agree i think the, the i think the whole world building and i talked about that quite a bit in the review i think is is brilliant in this and it is updated from the original i think also um it's worth mentioning just in case people are shocked by it uh, there are scenes where puerto rican characters among themselves speak in spanish it is not subtitled uh, and most of the time i can tell you as a spanish speaker um they repeat key words in English. You can figure it out. Yep. You do You do not need the subtitles. I want to reassure you of that. See earlier comment on lack of plot. No, but it, it's not about a lack of plot, James. It's about I'm just saying, it's not, it's not like, it's not well. Tenet. Do you know what I mean? If you miss a bit, it's not like you're going to okay, fall yeah, behind, like, are you? I mean, Tenet, people didn't love the plot in Tenet. I'm just saying. So, um, <laughs> you can't say it didn't have a lot of it. <laughs> so uh, it, is, it is worth mentioning. Don't worry about the lack of subtitles. You will follow what's going on. Okay. Five stars. Five stars then, says Helen O'Hara and Empire Magazine. For me, I thought it was very, very good, although I still think that the best shark-related movie that Steven Spielberg has Mm. ever been involved with is, of course, Jaws. Yeah, Jaws. I was trying to think, (laughs) was he a a producer in Jaws too? Was he a producer in Jurassic World where the shark gets eaten? That's true. There he was. But no, that's that's still not better than Jaws. Uh, Okay, but yeah, five stars also for Jaws. Well done, Jaws. Hurrah. Uh, in January, we have a Guy Ritchie, Jason Statham action movie called Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. And to get us in the mood for that is a movie that opened in the States some time ago, but is finally coming out here on Prime Video. It is Wrath of Man, Jimbo. It is indeed the long-awaited reunion of 
the Staith and Guy Ritchie. Um, so this is a relatively simple film in its setup. It is a man affectionately known as H who joins the American equivalent of Securicor, a cash truck company which shifts hundreds of millions of dollars a week around the Los Angeles area. There is clearly something going on with him. He's introduced to everyone. He's very, very sort of quiet, reserved to himself. Uh, he's shown around by Holt McCallany's Bullet, who is his mentor in the company. And it becomes clear that, shall we say, he has an agenda. When one of the cash trucks is uh, essentially an attempted robbery happens and they try and steal the money, he kills the shit out of all of them with, you know, no fucks given. This is, I don't want to give away any more of the actual story of that, but it, a lot of the sort of, uh, the impetus of this sort of plays out of a flashback. But the thing with this film is it's quite a simple film told in quite a complicated way. Yeah. Like it's quite straightforward, but Guy Ritchie does these very, very pretentious kind of like chapter headings, which are wildly unnecessary. And he has lots and lots of flashbacks to fill in information after the fact. So it has a slightly windy narrative sort of chronology to it, which again, it didn't really need. That said, the man knows how to stage an action sequence. And I actually found this quite gripping. I really enjoyed it when it starts to get all shooty, shooty, punchy, punchy, which is the technical term for it. Mm -hmm. um, I was very much there for it. Um, I do think it lacks some of the wit that he sometimes injects into these type of films. So it's quite humorless. Uh, so I could have gone with a little bit more of that. But generally speaking, I, I quite like this this little Staith Richie reunion. Yeah, it feels much more Staith than Richie. Yeah, if that yeah. makes sense. Um, there are moments. There are moments of, of mm. you know cleverness and fun and stuff. But uh, you know, in, in the sort of lock stock kind of snatch kind of way. But it, it definitely feels more standard issue Jason Statham action movie it than does. it does Guy yeah. Rich and a, yeah. Richie action movie. But yeah, I was I was entertained, but I will probably struggle to remember much of it, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in another week. Uh, so I, I thought it was basically mm. fine. But good cast around him. Like yeah. uh, I'm always very happy to see Holt McAnally. Yeah, McAnally and um, Jeffrey Donovan. Jeffrey uh, Donovan. Andy Garcia as well. Neve Algar as well. Yes, in a, in a small role. Andy Garcia there for about ten minutes. Um, Josh Hartnett doing his best to look extremely suspicious at all <laughs> yeah. times. You and, know, it's and fun. Scott Eastwood, who at no point tries to look menacing. So that's uh, <laughs> that's important. Uh, it's been a long time since they worked together. Uh, it was on Revolver, which yeah. mm. I did not like that film. It's no most snatch. people didn't like that. No. It is no snatch. It's the Germans. It's the Germans. Uh, it's the Germans. I do think also that there are moments where there's emotional heavy lifting that a different actor in the lead might have taken to another level. I think Statham does what he does. Like he had, There are Brits around him all putting on American accents. He, of course, does not do that because he does not do that. And he gives it that kind of like stoic sort of inner turmoil thing, which actually works in this film. But uh, yeah, certainly I think an actor with more dramatic range might have made this a slightly different movie. Yeah. When was the last time the Statham did an American accent? Uh, answers on a postcard. Was it Transporter 1? Well, then he just stopped for the rest of the Transporter movies. No, but genuinely, doesn't he? Like, I seem to recall he, he was... just stops. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if he ever was American in those. But I maybe think he was, I honestly think, and I could be making this up, but I think in Transporter 1 he's American, and after that he's just not. Was he not XSAS? I don't remember. But there's definitely something where, there, I, I, remember, I remember him doing it. And right. like, hoo, hoo. Answers on a postcard. Yeah. If you know when the last time Jason Statham did an American accent, either deliberately or accidentally in a movie, <laughs> then do send it in to us. Um, uh, or perhaps I'll spend the weekend re-watching Jason Statham movies. What a shame. What a chore that will be. Three stars then for Wrath of Man. And uh, we've already had James and Helen having an argument over something. And now we're <laughs> about to introduce Aaron Sorkin into the mix. 
because he's made another movie. Yes. Uh, it is Molly's Game 2, even Mollier. No. <laughs> no, it's not. It's Being the Ricardos and um, uh, uh, don't fight over it. I don't, I don't, think, <laughs> we're, I don't think we're, no, 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 we're going to fight. No, I think yeah. we can yeah. both agree. agree it is the third four-star masterpiece in a row for Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Well, suddenly and, we're fighting. Uh, <laughs> suddenly we're fighting. And it's all his fault. Let the record show. He oh will not God. let it fucking drop. Jesus. <laughs> oh well, this God. film, I would say this film is probably more your wheelhouse than mine, despite it being Sorkinese, because it's obviously about Lu- Lucille Ball. Sorkin is also my wheelhouse. Good God, man. <laughs> I mean, right up until Molly's Game, Helen. Molly's Game is not a agree. good Sorkin film. Yeah. God, you were expelled the from the fold when you besmirched his good name. Um, but this is Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and it takes place over a short pe- period during I Love Lucy's, I guess it's heyday, when it was at its peak, yeah. when she is accused of being a communist, and there is some, shall we say, turmoil within her marriage. So it all takes place over, I want to say, a week. A week, a and week. she is also um, pregnant, uh, pregnant, yep. and uh, has just announced that to the, the leaders of the, mm-hmm. the studio. So there's quite a lot going on. Quite a lot going on, yeah. So it's uh, 1952, as you say, at the peak of I Love Lucy, and... Uh, yeah, so any of these would be a crisis. All three of them mm. happening at once is is a big deal. Yes, yeah. and of course, this is not how it happened in real life. He took these these different crises, <laughs> which happened many years apart, and then in his way, he brought them together yeah. and decided that it would be like Fury's big week, uh, <laughs> but, but with the Aaron Sorkin twist. So yeah, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I do not love Lucy, and I have real no interest in in the subject matter of this at all. But weirdly, it doesn't matter because a the human interest in this just sucks you in. Yeah. But also, like it, it, watching anything by Sorkin, because the little Sorkin grace notes are always there, it always feels familiar. So it could just be an episode of The West Wing. Uh, the exchanges are brilliant. The dialogue is amazing, and I actually think he does a pretty good job by keeping it very tight on those two characters mm-hmm. and their relationship. And I know Nicole Kidman's come under. I don't want to say fire, but certainly they don't like her, Lucy ball particularly well, it's not, but I don't think she's doing that character it's not that her Lucille ball is bad in any way I think her 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 Lucille is very very good um, and her her performance as Lucy when she switches on that mm. persona for the TV is is amazing and you see her switch modes back and forth which is absolutely brilliantly played the problem is basically she looks nothing like <laughs> Lucille Ball like as a, nothing like a her. beautiful as beautiful white ladies go she does not look like Lucille Ball no. what's impressive here is there are moments where you're like oh that's that's pretty good but it's not an impersonation it's very much who Lucy was behind the scenes what she did to kind of get to the status that she was in and and how she had to fight Mm. to keep that status. So for me, you know, one of the most interesting discussions here is is kind of the least of these crises, which is the pregnancy Mm. angle, because she wants to... Lucy to be pregnant on the show. Why not? You know, and that had never been done in American TV history. The word pregnant, yeah. because oh my god, that they means might at have some had point sex. they had sex. <laughs> that kind of stuff I thought was really, really fascinating. I think it's a, it's. I know it's all nonsense in terms of the timeline, but I think it's yeah. a brilliant device to put all these three. And I really like the idea that she, where she talks about having, she's been dealing with male egos her whole career, but that like her marriage is in the balance because her dominance and her power on the show is in some way emasculating her husband, uh, and she's constantly being warned to sort of walk that line very carefully and that uh, their, their marital interactions are fascinating yeah they really are and I think you know th- that is still something that I think people struggle with in many relationships not all the good ones of course not all but um, but there is still this you know th- there's no female equivalent to being emasculated you yeah. know what I mean effeminated and, yeah it's not a thing so uh, there is this weird power struggle I think between some couples and, and this is probably something that a lot of Hollywood types can relate to even mm. now um but I just think it's a, it's a great portrayal of the personal meeting, the professional yeah. of, you know, Desi and Lucy being a personal couple, a professional couple, but also kind of a corporate couple and having to fight for their 
product, mm. if you like, and and the ways in which they work together on those different levels being kind of explored here. And of course, I mean, like as you'd expect with Aaron Sorkin, like an amazing supporting cast around them. While yeah. they do all the kind of dramatic heavy lifting, you just have a who's who of great Hollywood supporting actors around them. So mm. J.K. Simmons, of course. Yeah, Ali Shawkat. Ali Shawkat, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, people. it's like I think it's nice that in kind of showing how the sausage is made type thing, just the look at the production of the sitcom and all of the moving parts of that is interesting in and of itself. Yeah. All right. Four-star masterpiece then, that is Being the Ricardos. This is a four-star Aaron Sorkin film. Four stars. All right, four stars then for being the Ricardos. And we don't have a lot of time left, so all I'll say is that Lamb is bonkers and bewildering and uh, about a couple who, as you've heard, adopt a lamb creature and that comes with repercussions and consequences three stars for lamb and Ben went to see Clifford the Big Red Dog earlier on this week and so you, I feel you should talk about it as, as Ben is for your sins okay I'm going to lie back on this sofa and tell you about my experience <laughs> of Clifford the Big Red Dog no this was actually pretty charming um, it's an adaptation of the uh, American kids books mm-hmm. uh, that then became a, an animated series in the like late uh, well early noughties late nineties I think and He's Clifford. He's a big red dog. Perfect. He's a good boy. Probably not quite dogs. a 12 out of 10. Yeah. On the <laughs> so what does he do? Does he just run around being big and red and doggy? So uh, Darby Camp from Big Little Lies uh, plays Emily Elizabeth. She's this lonely kid. She gets left in the care of her uncle Casey, hapless uncle Casey, played by Jack Whitehall. Really weirdly does quite a bad American accent. His sister in it, Emily Elizabeth's mum, speaks with an English accent, which is even more confusing mm. why... Why Jack Whitehall is weirdly doing. Uh, well, Chris Nolan has an English accent. His brother Jonah uh, Nolan has an American accent. There's some kind of in-universe explanation for it. It's just why would you get Jack Whitehall and then get him to do a slightly strange American accent? He he's quite fun in it, and it has some like nice sort of spiky, funny lines in there. It feels quite like the John Hughes dog comedies of the '90s. You think like Beethoven and 101 Dalmatians, just with like a a big red dog instead of 101 Souls. small, small black and white dogs. <laughs> Weirdly, John Cleese turns up as a magic man in Central Park with a turquoise blazer who is... Um, he's in Mr. Megorium mode. Um, All right. It's it's a, it's a pretty sweet. And All weirdly right. like Okja, but for kids. So Tony, Why don't you lead with that, man? Honestly. <laughs> I, I do in my review on the website, which you can okay. read at empireonline.com. They, they are uh, running away from Tony Hale's actually really good fun as the villain of a uh, like big biotech corp who are trying to create giant animals. It's, it's Okja, but for kids. Cool. Three stars. for kids. All right. Three stars then for Clifford, the big red dog. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Helen O'Hara, we did it. Tight Woo. 90 tight 90 god knows what this will be by the time I cut all the stuff out <laughs> be a tight 40 by that point I'm guessing uh, but yes join us next week for the last Empire podcast of the year but boy have we saved you some incredible festive offerings uh, in terms of guests because we'll be joined by Julia Ducournau who Ooh. is of course the director of Titan and Raw and uh, it's one of the weirdest films you will ever see and that's open on Boxing Day out on the 22nd of December is a little film I like to call The Matrix Resurrections <gasps> and I'm delighted to say we'll be joined on next week's show by the one and the two Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss oh my god there's a Christmas Squee. present for everybody it's Whoa. going to be very very exciting but listen until then until we meet again until that auspicious occasion it is goodbye for my three colleagues of such lethal cunning Helen O'Hara Toodaloo. to the train station uh, Ben <laughs> Ben Travis 
Goodbye. And uh, James. Uh, <laughs> 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 you stole my line. No. <laughs> and, <laughs> and James Dyer. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I have to keep this stuff in now because otherwise it won't make sense. Uh, anyway, it is goodbye from me. I am off to cut some holes in the wrapping paper that, of these people under the tree. They haven't moved in quite some time. I'm getting slightly worried about them, but I'm sure all will be okay. Anyway, here we go. This is it. Let's end it with a musical number to finish this off. One day more <laughs> in the heights. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.